This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Welcome to the program. Dr. Matt here. Your coach, your life coach, helping you get through life. One day at a time. It's Thursday, and thank heavens it is because it's National Thank You Day. Thank you. These are words of respect, words that make day-to-day living go smoothly. Oh. Yes. <laughs> Harken back to yesteryear. Oh, I love the old health videos. Man. Thank you. Make sure you say thank you today. A polite child says thank you. <laughs> A child with friends says thank you. Hmm. Thank you. Thank you all, and thanks for being with us today. Got a great program for you. Today we'll be talking about water. Is there a shortage? For Hillary Clinton, there is. Yeah. <laughs> She's quite parched. She apparently parched. doesn't hydrate enough. That's uh, that's interesting. The health records are coming out. Would you like your health records just out there? Well, we'll talk about it. Donald Trump, 265 pounds. Is that how much? 230 is what he said, but then other people at the Dr. Oz taping said they heard 267, so it's yeah. really kind of odd at well, that Well, it seems like his doctor would know because they would have weighed him when they yeah. were doing the physical. Yeah, but I don't know. If there was a physical. So we'll also have a little fun with uh, Donald Trump and, and Hillary as well about uh, their, their health records. This is going to be an interesting day. She was kind of forced to release more yeah. because of the illness. And, uh, and, mm-hmm. and Trump is going forward, but he didn't actually release the documents. No, two, two papers. He, he handed them to Dr. Oz, which apparently was a surprise to his staff. He wasn't <laughs> going to do that. So he handed them over. And then uh, they said later this week, right, we have Thursday and Friday. Yeah. They probably won't do anything on a Saturday. So we have two more days. Release but, your documents. But Hillary has walking pneumonia and is um, going back to work today. Yes. <laughs> Uh, here she is. She still hasn't gotten rid of that. She's still. It's that darn. Uh, oh, oh, she almost had a sentence there. Maybe not. We'll get to all of that fun. Plus, um, again, celebrating National Thank You Day. A lot of interesting stories as well. You won't believe what's happening to this world. Oh, you will. You probably will. It shouldn't be a surprise. In fact, some of the stories are even important. You might want to know. A few. We'll get to that. All in of fact, them. All of them are, in fact. Let's first, though, get to Sadie Nielsen with the headline. Sadie, what's up? During his interview on the Dr. Oz show on Wednesday, Donald Trump said he's not worried about his age slowing him down. Trump is 70, and if elected, will be the oldest person to enter the Oval Office. When Oz asked him about his stamina, uh, Trump said, I would say based on my life, I don't know if this makes sense, but I feel as good today as I did when I was 30. The Dr. Oz show released a statement saying the host went over with Trump a full review of systems, including head and neck, hormone levels, respiratory health, and family medical history. The episode were aired today and no medical records were released to the press. Hillary Clinton's doctor said in a letter released Wednesday that the Democratic nominee is healthy and fit to serve as president of the United States, characterizing her pneumonia pneumonia diagnosis as mild and non-contagious. The new information on Clinton came from her physician who both wrote the letter about her health last year and was the doctor who diagnosed Clinton with pneumonia on Friday. The release included a one-page letter pronouncing vice presidential nominee Tim Kaine in overall excellent health from attending physician in Congress. 
A new CNN ORC poll released Wednesday shows Donald Trump opening leads over Hillary Clinton in a key battleground states of Florida and Ohio. This latest survey shows Trump ahead among likely voters in Florida, 47% to 44%. In Ohio, Clinton led Trump four points in a poll last month, but now she lags behind with just 41% to his 46% support. Libertarian candidate Gary Johnson, meanwhile, polls 6% in Florida and 8% in Ohio. And finally... And more Trump news, because we always need more Trump news. You can't get enough Trump. You can't get enough of it. Um, A Donald Trump supporter from Massachusetts is facing potential court gate for his vast array of campaign signs that local officials said far exceed zoning laws. Oh, boy. Um, Rick said, this is my property and I have a constitutional right to express my opinions. They're not coming down. It's free speech. Maybe I'm offending Hillary Clinton supporters, but that's okay. Mm -hmm. They have their own property. I have my own property. Yeah. Let me just put my signs up. Yeah. It didn't detail exactly how many signs he had, but from the picture, it was probably over 40. Well, isn't that funny? You can have a million lights on your front lawn, but (laughs) don't have a sign with Trump's name on it or too many signs. You can't have 40. Wow, Sadie, thanks. Um, I'm telling you, that's an interesting little change with Florida going on. Mm. I mean, Donald Trump is taking the lead in Florida, in Ohio, I think in Nevada. These are battleground states. Apparently, all of these states hate sickly people. I'm, I still think that they need to make these battleground states actual battleground states. Oh, wouldn't that be good? Battleground. And they go there and you actually have like a, an armored fight. That'd be or, great. Or, or at least paintball. Oh, I'd pay to oh, see that. Yeah, you know, I mean, at least no one's getting hurt at that point. But there is a way to keep score. But Hillary can't breathe. You just chase her for well, a bit. She would She'll just be like, you know, the general in, in the back on a, on a horse supervising. Oh, okay. That's how that would work. That's how the battle works. And again, all this concern over walking pneumonia. Something yeah. easily treatable. She'll be fine. She'll be fine. Except if you, like, I've had a cold and then I still had speeches I had to go give mm-hmm. and a radio show. And it's it's impossible. You, she needs more than just a few days of sleep, even though her daughter says, I've never seen her more tired. Sounds like she needs water. She's, she's not hydrated. <laughs> the woman needs to hydrate, which ironically, isn't that what pneumonia is, is too much fluid in the lungs. So apparently she's getting some fluid. What just, kind of fluid? Just going to the wrong place. Yeah. Slur- mm. Slurpees. Too many Slurpees. Trump is in trouble. Uh, they're accusing his fa- that his uh, charity of not doing appropriate things. It, it almost just feels like as soon as they hit Clinton, then they'll hit yeah, Trump on the same thing. Bounce around. He donated to the Attorney General of uh, Florida, and then a couple days later, she dropped her uh, office's pursuit of a uh, charges against the Trump University. You're going to you know, go after the Trump University situation. And they drop that and it looks sort of suspicious. I mean, nothing nothing illegal hmm. was done. It just looks bad. Yeah. Which sounds just like everything with the Clinton Foundation. Right. Except they are helping so many more people. Yes. Whereas I mean, they just look bad at a different scope. There's a, there's a writer at the Washington Post. Yeah. He is trying to figure out. When was the last time that Donald Trump used his own money to make a charitable donation? Why? Uh, why? Trump, Trump, has talked other about, people's money. Trump has talked about all the money he's donated to charity, mm-hmm. right? So they start looking through. And, and with, with a charity, you have to document everything. So it's, and it's public record. So right. he's just looking through the records. He, he had a, on Twitter, he would take pictures of this legal pad he had 
all these charities written in one column, all their names written down, and then did they did Trump donate, yes or no? And everyone was, no. Says who? Says the guy from the Washington Post. <laughs> and then they go through, and a lot of times when he's donating money, it was actually money that his campaign or the, uh, the charity raised from other sources, took mm-hmm. their money, donated it to the charity under the Trump Foundation name. So even yeah. it wasn't even their money. They just sort of funneled the money well, through. Well, he made that whole veterans donation, and then did that ever go through? Because that was a big... I don't know. And then he got so mad when people go, why are you checking on this? I'm like, because you said you did it, and you <laughs> haven't done it yet. Why are you following up? <laughs> so there's some, you know, yeah. sideways stuff going he on. He had a big day yesterday. Um, he he was on Dr. Oz. They recorded which will, the episode. Which will play today. today. Yes. And uh, that's where Dr. Oz uh, threw out the weight thing. Yeah. I mean, I'm pretty sure Donald wasn't loving that moment. You're, you're 6'3", 236 pounds, as I mentioned. I, in my mind, I'm thinking your body surface area and your BMI <laughs> is high. Yeah, if I had one thing, I'd like to lose weight. It's tough uh, because of the way I live. But the one thing I would like to do is be able to drop 15, 20 pounds. Taco bowls. He says he likes Taco to eat. Bowl. He likes to eat fast food because he knows what's in it. Yeah. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think that's true at all. He uh, also said that, that we have a vendor that Cosi Carney that supports us that sells some of that <laughs> stuff that's in that. He says the some of the food. exercise he gets is uh, giving speeches. Yeah, where he stands there and no. moves his hands. <laughs> <laughs> I've actually I wear my um, calorie counter watch uh, and my step counter watch when I speak, and I don't lose very many calories. Oh, okay. Well, unless he's up there like flapping like a bird, yeah. which well, I would love to see. By if the way. you watch, he's quite animated, but I don't know if it's enough for uh, weight loss. That's interesting. Two hundred and thirty-six pounds, and then they get into the BMI. Anytime somebody drops the BMI body mass index mm-hmm. into the conversation, seems to go really bad. Yes. Immediately the conversation turns. But he also talks about how young he feels. Let's talk about stamina. You've yeah. Let's talk about stamina. You've yeah. You've used that word a lot. You made an issue in this campaign. You argue that a president has to have a tremendous amount of stamina. Uh, if elected at age seventy, you will be the oldest person to ever enter the Oval Office. Why do you think you have the stamina for the job? Yeah, just about the same age as Ronald Reagan and um, and Hillary's a year behind me. I would say just based on my life. I mean, I've had, I I actually, and I don't know if this makes sense, I feel as good today as I did when I was 30. There you go. go. Certainly there have been people older than 70 that have entered the Oval Office. Oh, sure. I mean, they're bringing people in all day. They're just not the candidate. Or the president. He's the, according to his doctor, he will be the fittest president Ever. Ever. Well, in the history of the world. That guy. Yeah. That guy's a little. Yeah. Was this the the mad scientist uh, Independence Day guy? Yes. Okay. But you, I mean. (laughs) Crazy guy in the basement. Hillary doesn't have stamina. Apparently. Is what we hear. And um, Donald actually started, he, after going to Dr. Oz, I guess he went to Flint, Michigan and met and was in a church congregation there. And while he's at church, he starts kind of going off. On he, Hillary Clinton's health. Yeah, go ahead. But he gets in trouble because the pastor's not having it. It is hot, and it's always hot 
when I perform because the crowds are so big. These rooms were not designed for this kind of a crowd. I don't know, folks. You think Hillary would be able to stand up here for an hour and do this? I don't know. I don't know. So he went on Dr. Oz, he said, you know, talking about stamina and stuff. And then he's always been very nice saying, you know, let's hope she gets healthy and gets back out yeah. on the trail. Yeah. Then he goes, this is, that was in Ohio. And he said that. Do you think she could stand up here? But a few uh, a few minutes later, he goes, no, all seriousness. Hope she feels better. Let's get her back out then on the trail. Then he was all nice again. Then he was nice again. So he took a cut, went back. So. Then, though, the pastor interrupted him. Hillary failed. Everything she touched didn't work out. Nothing. Now Hillary Clinton... Trump, I invited you here to thank us for what oh, we've done oh, oh, okay. not okay. to give a political speech. Okay, that's good. Then I'm going to go back on the front. Okay. That is a good pastor right there. Okay. Flint's, uh, Flint's pain is a result of so many different failures. The church has done a lot of work of bringing bottled water, water to the area. Yeah. Right? It's, it's kind of expensive. Trump water? Ongoing, not Trump water, but... You know, water. Okay. And so he wanted to come and thank them for what they did mm. and bring sort of some focus back on Flint and their issue. And then he launches into this Hillary Clinton thing and then yeah. she walks up and tells him they're not. See, but off. that's a good pastor right there. She just took her little pastor stick and started beating on him. And Don't apparently, mess with the flock. Hillary has the opposite of the Midas touch because everything she touches is ruined. Didn't he say something like that? Well, I think it gets infected with. Walking pneumonia. Walking pneumonia. She has a bacterial pneumonia. Non-contagious. Non-contagious. Easily treatable. Everyone was like, did you see her hug that little kid? She had uh, pneumonia. She could have died. It was like the most staged thing I've ever seen. She walks out of the apartment. This little girl walks hello, up. Little girl. Oh, hello. And give her a hug. I mean, come on. I'm telling you. Like the Secret Service lets anyone walk down the sidewalk towards the potential candidate. You know what? what's great about all this? November's getting closer every day. I can't wait. Every day. Because you know it'll be fixed. The second they have that election, we're good. It's all no good. one's going to complain. Yeah, Everything's good. done. Totally good. Hey, Monday Night Football was on as well this week, and uh, they had a little incident. Somebody the, ran on the field? Somebody ran on the field. It was the 49ers, and it was the L.A. Rams. The L.A. Rams are horrible. The game was boring, and all of a sudden, this guy runs on the field, and the play-by-play guy, Kevin Harlan, decided to just go go with it. See what Third happens. and four, looks into the nickel of San Francisco in the secondary. Hey, somebody has run out on the field. Some goofball in a hat and a red shirt. Now he takes off the shirt. He's running down the middle by the 50. He's at the 30. He's bare-chested and banging his chest. Now he runs the opposite way. He runs at the 50. He runs at the 40. But there he goes. The 20. They're chasing him. They're not going to get him. Waving his arms. Somebody stop Look that out. man. Here comes the blue coat, Kevin. Oh, they got him. Here comes coming the blue from the coat. Oh, and they tackle him at the 40-yard line. I hope it was worth it, my friend, because you've got a night in the clink coming up. That's great play-by-play. Yeah. He was bored. That was exciting. The the L.A. Rams are horrible. Are they? Yeah, they're just Ah. bad. It's a first-year team. They need Jack Youngblood. They were bad in St. Louis. Right. And then they move, and yeah, they haven't really gotten any better. I bet they've got jet lag. They might. From the move. (laughs) Why couldn't that have happened uh, during the BYU football game? Like, really? Like, right at the end? Yeah, right after those targeting calls. Yeah. Man, it could happen. Don't think it can't happen. Interesting stuff, you know. Monday Night Football. If you're sick of politics, Monday Night Football or Dancing with the Stars, take your pick. We will be back, folks. When we come back, we're going to be talking uh, about water. We keep hearing stories about how we're running out of water. There's not going to be enough water for everyone on the planet. Is that true? Well, guess what? 
according to our next expert. We got plenty of water. Just depends where it is. We'll be right back. Stick with us. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. How much do you know about our current water situation? Do we have a scarcity of water on the earth? How do we measure our water usage? Here to speak to us today is Kate Brahman, lead scientist for the Global Water Initiative at the Institute on the Environment at the University of Minnesota Twin Cities. Dr. Kate Brahman, thank you so much for being with us today. It is a pleasure to be talking to you. What a what an interesting uh, article. I I had no idea. I learned so much, um, and and stuff I didn't even know I needed to know about water usage. That seems like one of the things about water. It's something that we do every day that we touch and we use, and yet it's so easy to have it be hidden and yeah. to not know that much about it. We hear about droughts. We hear about you know the need to conserve water. Um, and and even just the fear of maybe running out uh, uh, with of you know drinkable water um, here on the earth. Talk to us about water scarcity. Are we running out of water? We are not running out of water. Good. As I look at the ocean, I'm like, how could we? Except ocean water, exactly. salty, different. Teach us. It turns out that it's pretty hard to both make water and to get rid of water. And so, and the great thing about water is that it cycles, it evaporates, it rains again, and so we have water moving all around the planet. And it's not going away, but we're not getting any more of it. And the thing that really makes us feel like we're water stressed is when we're using more of it than is available. And so the thing that I think is really important to remember is this isn't like gold and it's not like oil where there's a finite amount of it and we use it up. We get to try again, but and it's there, we're not running out, but the amount that we use is what really matters. So hmm. how much, how are we sharing it, what are we doing with it is the thing that really matters. And what what are we doing with it, I guess, locally? Because it's not, it doesn't seem, I mean, I know, I know globally the water ends up moving around the atmosphere um, through condensation and other things, except don't we have a finite resource depending on where we live? Yep, I mean, that also cycles. And one thing that definitely can be finite is groundwater. So if you've got a well in your backyard or in your town and that's where you're getting water from, that's only – that may be filling up really slowly, that aquifer, or it may actually recharge pretty fast. So we can have locally finite water. And there, again, we really need to think about, well, how are we using this and is this the way we want to be using it? Um, there are some really interesting connections across the world where it turns out that if we cut down the entire Amazon rainforest, it would actually change how much it rains in other parts of the world. Hmm. But on a day-to-day basis, yeah, you're exactly right. We really need to think about what we're doing at home in our own watersheds. And we've we've talked about all of the flooding in Louisiana and in the southeast, uh, and yet in the southwest, it's arid. And dry, yep. and and there's droughts, and then it also seems like these droughts cycle, right? So yeah, sometimes absolutely. we have a lot more water than others. I guess none of that can be controlled. It just uh, it has to be measured, and then we just have to manage our usage is really the point. Exactly. And, it, you know, one of the things that's, that's tough about water, I think, is that we have to figure out how to, how to uh, manage for sometimes. 
So we know that droughts are going to happen. It's happened before. It's going to happen again. But most of the time, we're not in a drought. And so how do we make the best use of the resources we have in good years, but also be flexible and adaptive enough so that when a drought does happen, it's not a huge problem? Mm. One of the things I really loved about your article in the conversation um, was how water usually just keeps coming. It just cycles. Even in our own area, it just keeps cycling back and cycling back for us or downstream, I guess. And um, But there's some moments in time when water is actually removed from our cycle and taken elsewhere. Exactly. Explain that. Absolutely. So it's actually really a great way to think about it is in your house. So when you turn the tap on to brush your teeth or take a shower or do your cooking, some of that water evaporates. The bathroom gets all steamy and hot um, or your water boils on the stove. And so that water actually leaves your pot. But most of that water actually goes down the drain. It goes down the sink or down the toilet or in the kitchen, you know, you drain your pasta out and most of that water actually goes away. And depending on where you live, that water maybe goes into a septic system or it likely goes to a local wastewater treatment plant and they clean all of the stuff out of it and then they're putting it back into a river. So for me, I live in the Twin Cities right up near the top of where the Mississippi River starts. And we get our water, it comes out of the Mississippi, a little bit upstream of where I live in Minneapolis, and it gets cleaned and it comes to my house. And most of the water that I use in my kitchen and in my bathroom actually ends up going back into pipes. It goes into a wastewater treatment center and it gets put right back into the Mississippi. Hmm. So the folks in St. Louis who live a little bit downstream from us are probably using that exact same water. (laughs) And uh, the kids would be like, gross, that is sick. But in reality, it's 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 all good, and it's just part of the system. But that's water that is just constantly recirculated, reused. What water is it then that leaves us, that goes away? So that water also doesn't really go away, but we can't use it again right away. So the, the water that evaporates is part of the water cycle, like you probably learned about. I feel like it's the fourth grade. Right, exactly. The U.S. Geological yeah. Survey says, you need to learn about the water cycle. Um, But that water evaporates, and that's the water that becomes rain or snow in the winter. So it's not gone. Mm -mm. It's going to come back down again. But we can't use it again right away. Mm -hmm. So it really is a... um it's 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 kind of a shell game in a way, but I mean, and also a fairly consistent system and cycle. How do you measure it all? And how how because you're doing global measurements, right? Yep. So it turns out measuring water is actually really hard. Yeah. Um, on the kind of a local scale, when we measure water, so you probably when you listen to the weather report, they say you know, oh, in this city they got so many inches, and in that city they got so many inches. So when we actually measure water um, in our, you know, on a local scale, we're, we're taking a tiny little measurement at one point, even though we know that it's raining everywhere and it might be a little bit different down the block or in the next town. And we have to make some guesses about how the water actually got distributed in all of the places that we weren't taking measurements. And when we try to think about water at a global scale, there's really not, there's not a whole lot of data. So we do some work where we take information um, from all of those rain gauges in the United States and in Europe and everywhere, all the different countries that are 
collecting and reporting weather data. So some people are taking all of those numbers and trying to, it's almost like they're stitching them together into a quilt with each of these little points to see if you can get a whole picture. And then there's other folks who are going quite literally from the top down and trying to use radar data to figure out where is it raining. And you end up having to use big computer models to fill in all the pieces and to project what it probably looks like. Hmm. Man alive. And you do this every day, Kate? And I think it's super fun. <laughs> this is great. I mean, it really is. And when when I um, I know if I, my kids were listening right now, they're in school, thank heavens. I, they would ask me, <laughs> so ask Kate, what's, what percentage of the water on the earth is fresh water versus, you know, seawater? So it's pretty small. Um, if we look at all of the water on the earth, I think the number is about 3% of it is not seawater. And then of that, actually, most of it is frozen. So it's, in, it's up in the Arctic, and it's frozen into, uh, into the ice sheets and glaciers up in the far north and the far south mm. parts of the globe. And then a lot of it's underground also. Um, there have been some really cool studies that people have done recently, and it turns out there's probably a whole lot of water underground in northern Africa where the Sahara is. Really? Yeah, that's how they get um, the oases. There's yeah. actually water underground. Yeah. Now, I, in all the cartoons, those were just all illusions. Right. No, some of them are real. <laughs> some of them are real, right? And that's what you, you – one of the things you mentioned in the article is the simple fact that we have enough water even in the desert. It's just – it's back to the usage. If you need – if all of a sudden in the desert you're trying to create a Las Vegas and water every lawn, you're going to probably run out of water. Exactly. And the same thing is actually true for places where we have a lot of water. Um, so there's actually a, lo- a number of places in southern Florida that are starting to really feel some water stress because there's a lot of water there, but they're relatively using up a big fraction of it. Hmm. And all of their systems aren't built for that. And so they end up feeling water stress because they're not able to get the water that they want when they want it. It seems like the watershed managers are probably – um, some of the most important people in in a lot of our areas and cities, except they seem to be the least valued. It's like we don't bring them in until it's drought season. There's some of that, but, you know, I think there are lots of places where watershed management and water managers are really playing a pretty integral role mm. in how some of this happens. But, you know, like we were talking about when we first got on the phone, they're they're invisible a lot of the time when we're sort of in our day-to-day lives. Right. And so thinking about ways to make sure that we see water is something else that I'm really excited about. So maybe looking at it more, less of a water shortage issue, but more of water stress and water management. Yeah, definitely water management. Do um, when, well, I guess let's do this. Let's take a break and come back. I want to have you talk to us about some of the, the new technologies and the water-saving technologies and products. I mean, are we really cutting back? Are we really conserving as much as many of us think we are? Um, we'll take a break. We'll continue this discussion with Kate Brahman. She's walking us through the, uh, the water stress that we might be feeling, not necessarily the absence of water, but with the need for better management. We'll be back.
Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Gallons or liters, the real measurement of water, is it scarcity? Is it our management problem? Uh, apparently, according to our expert, Kate Broman, it's the, the water is there. It's It just needs to be treated carefully. Is that right, Kate? We need to manage it appropriately. I think that's a great summary of exactly what the issue is. And we have all this new technology, right? The the toilets uh, with the um, less usage of water. We're teaching our children to slow the flow of H2O. Talk to us about what's happening with technology, and and are we are there water saving products that are really making you know an impact? So. I think in general, these technologies are pretty good and they do positive things for us, but they don't always do what we think they're doing. So there's a whole process here in the U.S. The way that we get water, we either pump it out of aquifers, underground water storage, or it comes out of surface water, usually gets treated in some way, and then it gets sent to our houses. And it takes a lot of energy to do that. Um, the chemicals and all the processes that go into cleaning up the water and making it safe to drink and then moving it to our houses, heating it up so that it's warm enough. And at the very least, when we use less water in our houses, when you think about it, we're flushing drinking water mm. down the toilet, right? which is kind of crazy. Yeah, it is. Um, and so when we use less water in our houses, there's less energy that we're wasting because that water that we flush down the toilet doesn't need to be clean enough to drink. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a huge benefit of it. And then it really depends on where we're getting our water from. So this comes back to the question you asked, which was exactly right about local versus global and what's actually happening at home in our neighborhoods. So. For me, getting water out of the Mississippi River, um, if I use less water in my house, if I use a low-flow toilet or a low-flow shower, it means that, I work, that I'm demanding less. I'm taking less water out of the river, but I'm also putting less water back in. Mm. And the total balance isn't very different. It's the same, it's virtually. Really, it's really the same. Um, You know, the same amount of water is probably evaporating out of the toilet bowl, whether it's a high-flow toilet or a low-flow toilet. And the only difference is how much came in and how much went out. And the the difference, you know, the amount that ends up in the river downstream of where the wastewater goes back into the river is basically the same. Hmm. And so St. Louis doesn't get any more water downstream from the Twin Cities because I used a low-flow toilet. Yeah. I guess what you you just used less energy. Yep, use less energy, which is great. Less chemicals went into right. cleaning the water coming in and cleaning the water going out. It's a great thing to to do this, even in a situation like I'm in, because there's a lot of of energy and effort that goes into cleaning up water. At my house, we have irrigation water for the yard. Yep. Um, and then we have the potable water inside the house. And I, it, it makes sense, but why on earth are we not using maybe irrigation water in the toilets? So there's a couple reasons for that, and it's actually pretty highly regulated in the U.S. Yeah. And a big part of the reason is, what if one of your kids stuck their head in the toilet and started drinking it, and then they got sick? Well, then that kid should be sick, quite honestly. <laughs> That's just sick. So, no, but that know, makes sense, right? To, yeah. We're trying to make sure people stay healthy, I think, is really the big reason. 
behind hmm. a lot of the rules and regulations about keeping the potable water and the non-potable water separate. Yeah. Okay, answer me this, smarty pants. Um, I've got this is a big one, Kate, and you got to solve it for me. How come I can have a neighbor that has a car that will drive him all the way to work, but we still can't desalinate water from the ocean? We can. And uh, can we do it affordably yet? No, that's really the big challenge. Um, The thing about water is that we actually use a lot of it, and especially for the things that are really water intensive. So growing crops is actually far and away the biggest thing that we use water for. Right. Um, Worldwide, almost 90% of water consumption and about 75% of water withdrawals go towards irrigating agriculture. 90% of the Earth's water usage is in, is in irrigating crops. Yep. And that the number, though, is – and that's only, what, 6% of the globe? What yeah, was the number? Uh, I mean, it was, it's, it's just about 40% of the non-ice-covered um, Earth's surface is, oh, man. is cropland or pasture mm. land of the land. Interesting. So it's really not even going down the drain of the little child who leaves the faucet on. No, it's mostly in what you eat. The thing you did today that used far and away the most water was the toast you ate for breakfast. <laughs> really? Yep. A lot of water goes into growing crops. That's really the thing that's that's our biggest water footprint. Unbelievable. And um, I guess there's advancements in technology there? Yeah. There's lots of really interesting advancements with that. And they have a, a couple of different things that they focus on. So part of it is some of these water-saving technologies that are pretty similar to what I was talking about in a household with low-flow toilets. Right. And that can be good or bad, so sometimes it doesn't make much of a difference. And that's kind of the same situation where um, water's coming out, and if you put less water on the field, less water drains off the field, and mm. it doesn't make much of a difference. Sometimes it can be really, really good, though. So in the central part of the United States, for example, there's a really big aquifer. It's underneath parts of Kansas and Nebraska and Texas, and it's called the Ogallala Aquifer. We grow a lot of corn in that part of the U.S., and it's almost all irrigated, and the source of that irrigation water is the Ogallala Aquifer. Hmm. And we're drying it down. Oh, boy. There's, there's a sort of a finite amount of water in there. It recharges really, really slowly because most of that water ended up in there tens of thousands of years ago. And if they can take less water out of that aquifer, then it'll last longer. And so there's a real benefit to using technologies that increase the irrigation efficiency and actually, you know, if they use the equivalent of a low-flow toilet because their source is limited. Yeah. Well, you, you can almost imagine how much water just evaporates and then act, probably ends up leaving that aquifer, right? That's how yep. it would disappear. But if you could just deliver the water right to the root, just, the, just like bottle feed the root, <laughs> you, exactly. might, you might actually be able to conserve a lot of water. Yep. There's still going to be – a lot of water moving through that plant, you still need to, it's, it would right. still be the biggest way we used water, but you could make a really big difference. 
by doing irrigation more carefully. So if we made you the chief global hydrologist of the earth. I'm waiting for that. You've got all the credentials. Come on. You're right there, Kate. What would you do? Where would you start with your conservation efforts? I think the first thing that I would do is make everybody sit down and actually have a conversation about what is it that we want to do with our water. Because this is not, in the end, going to be a technological solution to this problem. It's going to be making really hard decisions as a society about what are the things that we want to use water for. So, for example, a lot of the corn that we grow over the Ogallala Aquifer, and we grow corn really well there. Those are really productive farmers. And almost all of that goes to feed cattle. Hmm beef cattle. Is that the highest and best use of that water? Well, I mean, for those farmers, yeah, definitely. Right. This is how they make a living and how they're able to pass their farms on to their kids. But as a society, do we want to encourage using our limited water resources for growing corn to feed cattle? Or do we want to see if we can set up systems that make it um, that make it reasonable for those farmers to grow other things or to use less of that water or to use it in a different way. Mm. So you start with the discussion. Figure yeah. out what, where are, what are our values? How, are, how do we want to sp- spend this resource? Yeah. As much as I love geeking out with water data, I can't solve these problems with data. What I can do as a scientist is help make it clear what are the implications of different kinds of choices? And what could we do if our values say this is the kind of outcome that's important to us? Mm. What would you suggest we do as parents with our kids to, to start having some of these discussions at home? I think helping to make water visible is really huge. So it turns out, for example, that um, in St. Paul, you can take a tour of the drinking water, uh, the drinking water treatment plant. Mm. All you have to do is give them a call and set it up, and you can go and actually see what does it take to make water that seems pretty clean coming in. We're way up near the start of the Mississippi River. What are all the things that they have to do to make water clean enough to come to my house? Man. Which I thought was pretty cool. Yeah. Well, um, I think every kid would think that's cool. Yeah. <laughs> so it's both pretty cool and also you know, really, I think, is a, is a good first step in helping us understand, hey, how much water are we using for different things? Yeah. If you've got a yard that where you're irrigating and you're watering your lawn, letting your kids see, what does my water bill look like in the summer versus the winter? How much more water are we using when really the only difference is that we're putting water on our lawn? Right. Or how much did that sprinkler head that was broken cost dad? Yeah. Yeah, that's a big deal. That's happened to all of us, where all of a sudden you discover that you've got that loose faucet and <laughs> it's geyser. Dumping, been dumping water down the drain for right. four days. Oh yeah. Oh, it's so. We had a we had an underground pipe that dumped tens of thousands of gallons without us knowing. Yeah. Until finally, the water company came to us and said, uh, "What are you guys doing here? <laughs> are you guys a nuclear plant?" No, we're not. It's crazy. Um, I guess, Kate, as we as we wrap this up, there's water. There's plenty of water, but this is, still becomes a human issue, apparently. Yeah. 
Humans got to talk. We got to get on the same page. And we have to start identifying what our values are and where we want to expend our resources. Yeah. And we can use water more productively. So if what we want is to make sure that farmers are staying in business and growing the food that we need, how can we help them grow just as much food and have just as stable an income, but maybe do that using less water? Mm. How do we make sure that we're getting the energy that we need in our houses with less water? How do we make sure that we're getting all of the gadgets that make our lives go with less water? Well, Kate Broman, we appreciate you. Dr. Kate Broman, that uh, great, great conversation and wonderful insight. Again, Kate is the lead scientist for the Global Water Initiative at the Institute on the Environment at the University of Minnesota, Twin Cities. Isn't that fun to know smart people? We'll take a break, come back, continue the smart discussion. Stick with us. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Again, happy National Thank You Day. I want to say thank you to you, and I can't deny the fact that you like me. No, you can't, Sally. That's Sally Field. Yeah. We don't like you, Sally. We love you. It was Gidget. What's Gidget. By the way, one of the greatest Go ahead, TV over, shows overstate Gidget. of all time. There you go. Gidget, I grew up on Gidget. Well, it was in reruns like by many years by the time I was watching it. But Yeah, me too for some reason. But I don't know. She they, they made the beach seem like so much fun. <laughs> what about the flying nun? No. And that's neat too. That went a step too far. I mean a nun that's flying, that's that they, ought to be written down. They really made having superpowers really just really boring. That was the beginning of the superhero movement. No, she's not a superhero. That is was it, just a gimmick. Is it Marvel doing a a superhero that's a nun? No. There's one called, well... We Black and white. There's one called Preacher, but it's not really a... It's not it, good. Is it not good? Well, storytelling, good, but not <laughs> the same way as like the Flying Nun was, you know, wholesome and family-friendly. Right, right, right. Yeah. Okay. Any other news that we made, We need to get to? So I found this article. It was interesting. Uh, Trump is gaining in the polls. Uh-huh. He's made He's, up a point or two. Says who? It's all within the margin of error. Right. So I, it's there. He's. I, I guess the bigger story is that Hillary isn't pulling away as fast as many people think she should be because of her own problems. Yeah. Trump is gaining. It's hard to so run it, an election with pneumonia. So this uh, writer, it's in the Independent Journal Review, a guy named Hunter Schwarz. He, he put together a list of – he read The Art of the Deal. In it is a list of Trump's top ten comeback tips. So when you're in a business and you need to come back from some failure, here are right. your tips on how to do it. Okay, okay great. And by, he, he by, did this Donald. As, he, by Donald. He did this to kind of compare what he's actually doing to see if he's following his own okay. suggestions. This is good. See if it's working. Tip one, play golf. Well, he's doing that. No. Apparently Trump has not played golf. He, he has said in the past that it helps him relax and concentrate, but he hasn't played any golf publicly recently. Huh. He has, however, criticized President Obama for doing step one, play golf. He's afraid to golf in public. Well, he's got that pooch. Maybe he's got a hitch in his giddy-up when he goes he's to He's trying school. to lose weight. He ought to be golfing. Tip two, stay focused. Trump defined focus as having a strong work ethic. Okay. So what do you think? Is he staying focused? Yeah, I think he's doing I, I don't know that he's staying focused by everyone else's terms, but he is working hard. Tip three, be paranoid. 
Oh, he's nailing that. Find one thing in his uh, – it says in this Monday Trump email that suggests the campaign is paranoid. He goes, you cannot. <laughs> I don't know if that's true or not. But four, be passionate. Would oh. you say he's reflecting any sort of like demonstrating passion as he is out there? Yeah, on the passion, Trump passion. It's definitely more passionate than focused. Yeah. If you're thinking of focused as a directional thing, because he's kind of everywhere, but he's passionate and he waves his arms when he speaks. This says uh, tip five, go against the tide. <laughs> Trump wrote that doing something no one else is doing helped his career, like when he kept 40 Wall, uh, 40 Wall Street as an office building instead of as a residential building like everyone else in lower Manhattan was doing at the time. He's mm. probably referencing some sort of housing scandal. But uh, tip five, go against the tide. I think he's doing that. Yeah, I think he's killing that. <laughs> That's kind of what he's uh, set up his whole uh, campaign around. Tip six, go with your gut. He's doing that. Well, don't bring up his gut. I mean, that's the second day in a row they keep bringing up his gut. There, there's the the conventional thinking of how you run a campaign, and then there's the Donald Trump. He campaign. totally wings it with it by gut, doesn't he? He just says, "Yeah, what he does trusts my gut his, say? his own intuition and goes with it." Tip uh, seven: Work with people you like. How many people has he fired? Now he has a group of people that are yeah, he, well, helping plus him. Plus, he works with him. his family. That's why he keeps his family. Yeah, close. he's living that one. Tip eight: Be lucky. Trump wrote that people who are born rich are lucky, but if you're not, you can help coax luck, not your life, by working hard and being at the right place at the right time. Well, you just grab luck right by the throat <laughs> and you just force it where you need it. Tip nine: Get even. <laughs> Anyone's wronged you? Get no, them back. Yeah, he's got that one down. And tip 10, always have a prenuptial agreement. <laughs> have a way out of whatever situation you're in. That's amazing. He's, he's walking his talk. So he's, uh, he's using these to beat Hillary then? Well, that's yeah. what they're, he's asking. The author is asking. These are the tips that he's using. I'm going to beat her so easily. I haven't even started on her yet. I, I mean, I'm going to beat her to death. Oops. Don't say that. <laughs> Oh, good old Donald. Yeah, he's he's living the art of the deal. We'll see. Yeah. He doesn't play golf. Step one, he's not doing that. I think... Go play golf. He, he'll play golf later. So let's say he loses. He'll have the rest of his life to play go, golf and go make a lot of money on his newfound fame. As and, president? And hang out with Putin. <laughs> his good friend. They're good buddies for crying he out loud. He has an 80% approval rating. What I don't understand. Trump or Putin? Putin. How does he not have 100? He controls the media. Well, he doesn't want to look greedy. Oh, is that what it is? He's yeah. trying to make the numbers look good? Okay. He's, he's controlling his temperament. Well, you know what? Donald Trump is Donald Trump. But he was on Dr. Oz, so we know he's healthy. One more story. Okay. A woman in South Carolina got a $4.6 million agreement from Target. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. She sued, got money. She walked out in the parking lot a couple months back, hypodermic needle. Her daughter picks it up. She looks down, slaps it out of her daughter's hand, sticks her in the hand with a, this hypodermic needle. Oh, no. So she goes and says, you know, you know Sue's uh, uh, Target wants $12,000. Target comes back and says, how about $750? Wow. Was, and, Target, was it Target's needle? No, but Just she's saying premise? it's your premises. It wasn't clean. It could have been okay. dangerous. Ends up. And they go to court over it. So she said twelve thousand. Target said seven fifty. The court gave her four point three million. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah, it all works out. Sounds like targeting to me. <laughs> Those refs might want to take another yeah, look. You know what? Targeting's a problem. Take a half game off. We'll take a break. We'll be back. More fun next hour.
This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. We're here to give you the information, the tools you need to live a healthier, happier life. That is the program today, and we are on target, folks. We'll be joined in a few minutes by uh, Dr. Sue David, who will speak to us about emotional agility, how to manage emotion, and, and really how to work through the emotional trials and troubles that you have in life. We will get to that, as well as also celebrating National Thank You Day. T-H-A-K-Y-O-U, thank you, thank mm-hmm. you. No, thank you. T-H-A-K-Y-O-U, You are so welcome, and thank you for the wonderful song. It's National Thank You Day, the day that uh, everybody deserves a good thank you. So when you go into the store today, when... You know, somebody hands you a paper when one of your producers says, hey, Matt, I would say, hey, Sadie, thanks for saying hey. You don't have to sing the song. You don't have to spell it out. You could just say thank you. It is National Thank You Day. We will get (laughs) to that uh, as well as we are going to fill you in on a crazy story. Talk about emotional agility. A couple that has been raising a gorilla. In France. The gorilla's name, by the way, cute as can be, Digit. Isn't that a cute name? Why does this sound familiar? Digit. What do you mean? Does that sound I familiar? I don't know. It well, seems Gidget, like... We were talking about Gidget and how that's one of my favorite shows, but maybe Digit, you know, we'll get to Digit. We'll tell the whole story. It's a cute little story. Cute little gorilla. Major monster gorilla. We'll get to all of that. Plus um, some other interesting stories you're going to want to know about, including polar bears that have trapped some scientists um, in, uh, I guess, near Russia. So it's a, it, there's a problem. Duh. Duh. Sorry to go all Russian on you. But first, let's get to Sadie Nielsen with the headline. Sadie? One of New Hampshire's leading publications, The Union Leader, decided to endorse Libertarian candidate Gary Johnson over Donald Trump, a break in tradition for the paper which has backed the Republican nominee for over a hundred years. The man is a liar, a bully, a buffoon, wrote the Union Leader publisher in an editorial about Trump. He belittles any individual or group that displeases him. He has dishonored military veterans and their families, made fun of physical fr- the physically frail, and changed political views almost as often as he has changed wives. John Brennan, the director of the CIA, says Russian hackers have been breaking into U.S. political websites for years. Brennan discussed the cyber attacks on state election systems and the Democratic National Committee, saying he does not specifically blame Russia, but he did point to Russia's history of election of interfering with other countries. He also told us that he expects more breached information to be released by hackers before the election. 
According to a new survey commissioned by the Council on Foreign Relations and National Geographic, college students and recent graduates are largely uninformed on world affairs. The survey revealed significant gaps between what young people understood about today's world and what they need to know to successfully navigate and compete in it, the document states. For example, just 34% of respondents knew that more Mexicans are returning to Mexico than leaving the country to enter the U.S., Additionally, only 30% could identify the legislative branch as one that is charged with declaring war. And finally, in your drone news, Mm. a group of Washington state drone makers showed off their latest model's power by using it to pull a man on a skimboard in a drone surfing video. The creators of Free Fly System Drones posted a video to YouTube showing what happened when they used a Free Fly Alta 8, it's called an octocopter, to pull a man on a skimboard across the surface of the water. The company said the process invented a new kite surfing inspired sport, a.k.a. drone surfing. A.K.A. lawnmower in the air. A.K.A. let's just become a lazier nation than we already are. (laughs) You can't even scurf on your own. You lazy, lazy man. Hey, Sadie, thank you so much. You are welcome, Matt. That was a great great news break. Octocopter. Isn't there like a Doc Ock octocopter in Marvel Universe? There's probably a toy. I don't think they have anything specific. Isn't it? Any copter flown by the octop, the octuplet mother, the octomom that had eight kids? There's the octonauts. It's a little kid show. Okay. Sorry. Just checking. Okay, we got to get to the important news as fast as we can. Uh, I was just taken aback by this cute little story about a gorilla. And we a lot of times on the show, we like to – Bring up cute little animal stories because, you know, everybody loves a good animal and the cat videos that get so much attention. So we found this story about a crazy French couple that have kept a gorilla in their house for 18 years. It seems like eventually the gorilla would turn into a, you know, a real big gorilla. And it did. It did. So – uh in Lyon, France, Pierre and Eliane Thivillon. So two French people. Adopted the gorilla when she weighed just four pounds and six ounces. Cute. Just a cute yeah. little four-pound yeah. baby. Basically. Wild animals are cute when they're a babies. hairy little baby. Then they grow up into man-killing machines. And although the giant animal has become more independent, she still relies on her adoptive human parents to help pick out food mm. out of her teeth or to pull a splinter from her hand. The couple have treated the gorilla like their very own child. They named the gorilla Digit. Digit. Hmm. Uh, and interestingly, uh, the, the Pierre is missing a digit. Hmm. Wait a minute. Okay, now I know where I'm hearing this from. I'm surprised you didn't what? know about this. What? So there's actually going to be a new show on BYU TV. No way. So they, we just got our second scripted series. Yeah. And now this is going to be the third scripted series. There's another scripted series on BYU TV. Yeah. What's it about? The, the You mean the second one that they just did? Well, yeah. The second one is that Orson, Orson Scott, Scott card. card thing. Yeah. Yeah. What was the, what's the third one? Hold on. I'm pulling it up right now. There's a trailer for it. You want to hear it? I guess. Let's do it. Following the recent acquisition of the Orson Scott Card sci-fi series, Extinct, 
BYU Broadcasting now has its sights on another scripted series, this time a sitcom entitled Digit. Digit is a show about a banana-eating, boy-crazy teenage gorilla called, you guessed it, Digit. Follow Digit's wacky adventures in France as Pierre and Elion Thibion guide their gorilla through her teenage years, while friends and family members drop by on occasion to offer unsolicited gorilla-rearing tips. You'll love episodes like Digit Digit Who's Got the Digit, in which Pierre's pinky finger goes missing and everyone suspects mischievous Digit, and an appealing job in which Digit hatches a harebrained scheme to work at a banana stand in order to pilfer the inventory, and of course Monsieur Clouseau for mayor, in which Digit is mistaken for a local mayoral candidate. Digit, this playful primate will melt your heart and kill you. With kindness. Oh, that's cute. Must see TV. That's gonna be a that's gonna be a hit right there. Yeah. Watch out, Studio C. <laughs> You've just been replaced by Digit. Oh man. Oh, see, that's exciting. So they can find that on BYU TV. Uh, yes, starting uh, spring of 2017. I want to see the one Digit Digit. Who's got the digit? <laughs> that. It reminds me of Gidget. I don't. I don't think there's a, a connection. No. Hmm. That's fantastic. Although I did read that Sally Field might make a cameo. <gasps> really? Yeah. I think she's playing a flying nun. Oh, how fantastic! Is a flying nun going to appear in the in the? She's just gonna fly by. <laughs> just, she's in the background. Just a little flyby. She's got to get clearance from the FAA. And on the way, while she's flying by, she's gonna say, "You like me." Wow, that's exciting. Oh, I'm so excited for the new season of uh, shows. That's awesome. Hmm. Digit. Who'd have thunk it? Just one little story out of France becomes – he's going to be a gorilla superstar. I mean, how many gorillas do you see on the big screen? Well, there's King Kong. Planet of the Apes. Planet of the Apes 2, 3, 4. Oh, okay. Well, I mean, it was, it was kind of a rhetorical thing. I was just throwing oh, it there's out. There's a cartoon as a kid, The Great Grape Ape. She was purple. Yeah. That was a cool cartoon. You know, weirder shows have been on the air. Remember Alf? Oh, yeah. Now, that wasn't a gorilla. That was an alien. He liked cats, right? Like to eat yeah. cats? Yeah, yeah. See, that's just... He was chasing Lucky the cat all over the show. <laughs> <laughs> that's neat. That's really neat. Oh, okay, well. Digit. Mark that off my list. I'm going to have to now, – now you can just go to BYU uh, Broadcasting, yeah. BYUtv.org, and you can just see when it's on the schedule. Plus the Orson Scott Card show as well. This is – it's taken off here. Um, wow. Uh, any, do you have any other headlines? I mean, well, not I li- that you can beat Digit. When but, I find new food, yeah. I bring it to the show. Not physically. You've never well, I, brought. I, I bring the idea the so we can talk about if we if it sounds appetizing at all. Wouldn't it be better if you just brought the food? It would be, but that's not available yet. Okay, it's usually a preview yeah. of things. To You're come. the one that brought us. Uh, it was the, the the pink meat. Yeah. <laughs> so the, the pink meat and it all works. But this one is about a new flavor of candy corn. Do you like <gasps> candy corn? Uh, I like about one of them. Candy corn is a very – it's a misunderstood candy. 
Yeah, it's people, some, some people question if it's even a candy at all. People like it. They they hate it. They think it's gross. I happen to like them quite a bit. But don't they? Doesn't it raise your sugar level really they're, fast? They're basically straight sugar. So take you know take care. Don't eat like the entire bag. But right. it's just a very polarizing candy. Yeah. Uh, but there's a new flavor coming out. Okay. Uh, three fra- flavors that approximate brunchy goodness. Brunchy. So they're brunch flavored candy corn. Did Willy Wonka come up with these? I don't know. It's from the Brock's family of candy, I guess. Um, so what it's saying is you have maple-drenched French toast, Ew. waffles immersed in strawberry, Ew. and um, perhaps some sort of sour cream or whatever cream you're using, and pancakes with chocolate chips. <sighs> Those are some of the flavors they're putting out as their brunch line of what, candy corn. What is just the – what is the normal – Orange one flavored. That's as. the candy corn flavor. What is that like corn syrup? Is that the flavor? Honey. I think it's honey. I don't think so. That's what they tried to tell you. Plenty of corn syrup. I none of those really sound appetizing to me. So you have one that tastes like maple drenched French toast, one that tastes like mm. waffles and strawberries and cream. And one that tastes like pancakes and chocolate chips. Do they have if I want brunchy goodness, yeah. I might not go for those. I might. Do they have like a Denver omelet flavored candy corn? No, but uh, hmm. a Denver omelet flavored candy corn. That sounds even. It sounds the, better than. I think the real thing is there's just some flavors that should not be made into yeah. into candy. I, I like the candy. I like the uh, the corn syrup candy corn. Other variations that they put out are peanut butter, Blech. peanut butter cup, Blech. caramel, Blech. sea salt chocolate, apple mix, and uh, caramel mustachio, whatever that is. You don't like any of those foods, Matt? I like every one of those foods, but when I think of it in a little corn sugar pellet. Just buy them. If you don't like them, put them in your emergency kit. You can use them as candles. That's true. Good point. So candy corn, as they call it, a polarizing confection. As they call it, a brunchy goodness. Again, if they want brunchy goodness, I would go with uh, scrambled eggs. You just want moons over my hemi. Ah, there you go. Now that's brunchy goodness right there. You want egg-flavored candy? Yeah. No. Who doesn't? It just gets worse. Ah, Okay. Well, good to know. So beware. There's going to be brunch-inspired candy. I have a feeling that's not going to go anywhere. Probably not. They keep throwing these new flavors at us. They're trying. See what sticks. But they're going to have to change the shape and the color and everything. No, to make it's still it seem... the same little yeah, color. Yeah, that's why you kind of know it's the same thing. Yeah. Huh. Butterscotch M&Ms, though. Now, that is the only food you've ever brought in here. I never brought those in. I uh, brought in candy, candy corn. corn. Yeah. It's the only it was one. last Halloween. I walked in. Happy Halloween. Give everyone a little bag of candy corn. Did you? Or I thought you just like gave us each five candy corns. That's basically what it was. That's really good. I, spent, way, I spent more on the Ziploc bags. I don't know if you heard, but Sadie uh, reiterated her promise to bring in Cronuts at oh, some nice. point. Cronuts is one of our great sponsors on the show. Cronuts. Okay, we'll take a break. When we come back, we will be talking with uh, Dr. Sue David about emotional agility. Your ability to uh, get through life might be dependent on your ability to manage emotion. Hang on, stick with us. And now, a word from our sponsors. Mm. Mm. Enjoying that burger, son? It's pretty good, I guess. 
Hey, how did you get into my the house? The back door was open. Mmm, that's lean, finely textured beef you've got there. Also known by its adorable nickname, Pink Slime. It's the low-fat killer, I mean filler, that's used to beef up many processed beefs. Uh, how's it made? Good question, Billy. Jimmy. Connective tissue, trimmings, and scraps from industrial butcher plants are carefully mixed in a large steel reactor. Then, after a few unimportant and frankly boring steps, yummy and lean pink goo emerges. Ammonium hydroxide is then generously injected into the mass of quote-unquote meat, effectively sterilizing against microbes such as E. coli and salmonella. You don't want E. coli, do you? Do you? Uh, of course not. Well, now that you know what LFTB is, you'll want to buy our delicious products. Casicarne, a subsidiary of Conammonium Hydroxide Associates, is making their delicious meats available to the general public. Having a barbecue? Throw on some mouth-watering beaker bobs and frankenfurters. Going on a picnic with the family? Don't forget to pack some scrumptious balabnia sandwiches. Running late for work? Don't worry. Just pop a breakfast pink pocket into the toaster. It's ready in seconds. And be sure to try our other products, which are quickly becoming bestsellers, like flask jerky, slab-a-lab, and for a taste of grandma's home cooking, phlegm meatloaf. Hello, police. There's a strange man in my kitchen. Whoops, gotta go. Cossie Carne. We chemically treat our meats because we care. Welcome back, friends. You know, the way we navigate our inner world, our everyday thoughts, emotions, and self-stories is the single most important determinant of our life's success. It drives our actions, careers, relationships, happiness, health, everything. So what happens when we don't feel successful in this area? Dr. Susan David, a renowned psychologist and expert on emotions and happiness and achievement, draws on her more than 20 years of research to show that emotionally agile people are not immune to the stresses and setbacks. She's here today to talk with us a little bit about her book, Emotional Agility, Get Unstuck, Embrace Change, and Thrive in Work Life. Dr. Susan David, thank you so much for being with us. And thank you so much for having me. This is uh, such an important topic. I, In my uh, coaching program and, and practice, I see th- this is the thing that sets every other human apart, it seems like, the ability to really be strong and, and able to understand and recognize and manage our emotions. Absolutely. As you say in the introduction, the way we navigate our feelings, and we have so many thousands of thoughts, emotions, and stories every day, And these really drive what we put our hands up for, what we don't, the careers we go into, what we feel we can do and can't do, and how we parent our relationships. It really drives everything. And I set out when I was writing Emotional Agility to really answer this key question, which is, what does it take internally, the way we navigate our internal worlds, that enables us then to thrive externally? Mm. Is that so emotional agility? how, How do you define it? define emotional agility as the ability to be with our inner world, our thoughts, emotions, and our stories in a way that is uh, curious so that we aren't just ignoring them. We're curious about it. We're also able to be compassionate with ourselves. And 
at the same time, we are able to uh, have behaviors that align with our intentions and values. In other words, it's not your thought or emotional story, I shouldn't apply for that job, or I'm just going to walk out the room when my husband starts in on the finances. Uh-huh. Um, it's not the thought, emotional story that drives our behavior. It's rather how we want to be in the world, our values and our intentions. So emotional agility is the ability to be with your internal world in an effective way and still to make choices that are aligned with who you want to be in that, the world. That is so critical, isn't it? Because it seems like that might – is it the lack of being aligned to our values and our core principles? Is that what sets us off and almost creates the dissonance that, that then vibrates the rest of the being? Well, that's a really interesting question. I often say when I'm working with individuals both in organizational and other contexts that often when people are experiencing sadness or guilt or frustration, often that signal, that emotional signal, is a sense of dissonance between I'm moving away from something that is of value to me. I'm moving away from my values. Mm. And, you know, oftentimes what will happen is we live in a world where so much of our messaging is just be positive, just think positive. (laughs) And so often what can happen is people can push those emotions and thoughts aside in the service of simply trying to be happy. And what happens in that context is people aren't actually learning from their thoughts, emotions, and stories. So, for example, um, someone who is feeling really depressed, I, as a psychologist, have never met anyone who is depressed who isn't looking for a better way to be in the world. Um, Social anxiety often is around our connection or our sense of do we belong. And then even in the workplace, someone who gets really frustrated because they feel that their credit has been stolen or their ideas have been stolen, uh, that emotion is often a signal to that individual that they care about fairness and equity. So when we just shut our emotions off or push them aside, what we do is we often are stopping ourselves from being able to learn Mm. from our emotions and thoughts about what it is that is of value to us. And therefore, we aren't really able to recalibrate our actions and to make changes that are necessary in our lives. So the the agility comes from um, not just feeling the emotion and then trying to avoid it the rest of the day. The agility comes from having an emotion, but then going inward and trying to figure out what this emotion is teaching us, what what it's trying to help us understand. Absolutely. So there are very interesting studies that show on average people have about 16,000 spoken thoughts every single day, and those thoughts often around and contextualize about their emotions. Hmm. Now, if you think about how many more thousands we have every single day, we're not going to go to every single one of those because many of our emotions are just, you know, are transient. Um, And so the aspect of emotional agility and the agility part of it is the idea, yes, that we're not going to simply ignore stuff that's inside us that is difficult or our difficult experiences or our stories, our narratives. We are going to enter into a place into ourselves that feels honest and 
connected and authentic with who we are, and then we're going to try and learn from them. And that's not the same as either ignoring emotions or on the on the other hand, ruminating. Like we're not. Uh, what I'm not proposing here is that people dwell on right. and overanalyze their emotion, but. Simply, for example, being able to, you know, if you someone who is coming home from work and is saying, you know, I'm stressed, I'm stressed, I'm stressed, and every single day it's just, I'm stressed. There's a world of difference between being stressed and upset or stressed and disappointed, stressed and angry, stressed and I thought my career would be more than it is. And so it's only when we are able to really get accurate about what it is that we are feeling. Uh, This is an area in psychology called emotion granularity, granularity, this idea that even when the feelings are uncomfortable, but we're able to go to them and notice them and label them, that we are then able to move forward effectively. And there's a body of research that shows that when we are able to notice our emotions in this way, it actually impacts on our goal setting and intentionality and ability to actually then make change. Wow. So it's it's um, it's more than it's not. Some would just say, just be positive and just paint over the issue. But you're saying go into the emotion and the agility. And we learn this in your book. It would be to go in, get deeper, look at the thoughts behind it. Uh, go into the emotional granularity, notice it, label it, um, and and, uh, and and then by labeling it, we turn it into something else, I guess. Correct. A core idea of emotional agility is the idea that emotions and thoughts often contain beacons to things that we care about in the world. Um, and so that they're useful, they're important, they exist in a way that is functional and helpful for us as human beings. And that that idea doesn't then mean that you feel an emotion and you are right. Really what I'm suggesting in emotional agility is that emotions are data, but they are not directions. Thoughts are data, but they're not directions. So we always want to be asking ourselves, you know, I'm careful and caring and compassionate about my inner world. But who's in charge here, the thinker or the thought? Hmm. Who is in charge, the emotion or me, the feeler of the emotion? Um, who's in charge here, the story that says I may as well not apply for a job? Or me, the person who has many stories? And I yeah, absolutely believe and the research supports the idea that these are fundamental skills. I think that this idea that we are promoting in our culture, which is that we should just be happy all the time, is actually paradoxically undercutting our resilience. If you, for example, look at the, you know, very, very frightening statistic that the World Health Organization predicts that by 2030, depression will be the leading cause of disability globally. Hmm. Not heart disease, not cancer, depression. Um, We really need to, I think, as human beings, and I don't think we do well with this in society, you know, appreciate that that life is fragile and that we are well until we're not. We're with people who we love until we aren't. And unless as we as individuals are able to actually accommodate the reality of our lives instead of just trying to be happy all the time, 
I think we undercut our resilience. And by the same token, I think that our, you know, what is often spoken about as overparenting, uh, overparenting can also be expressed in trying to protect our children from difficult emotions and difficult experiences. Mm. And I think that overparenting actually hinders our children's ability to be resilient. To yeah, they're less they're less able to handle it themselves. Correct, correct. Because there's always someone coming in and saving them from that, and so they don't learn over time that emotions pass. They don't learn that things that they can do can impact on their emotions and, and thoughts. And so there's always a sense when you've had someone protect you from something that the thing that they're protecting you from is somehow scary. Mm. So you, you don't develop your own competence in that area. Yeah, and th- yeah, then all of a sudden you don't understand your emotions. You've never had to deal with your emotions, deal with your thoughts, deal with the thinking behind it. We'll take a break. We're speaking with Dr. Susan David. She's the author of the book Emotional Agility, Get Unstuck, Embrace Change, and Thrive in Work Life. She's also a psychologist on the faculty of Harvard Medical School. Stick with us, folks. We're going to increase emotional agility in just a minute. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. On the phone with us is Dr. Susan uh, David. She is the author of the book Emotional Agility, Get Unstuck, Embrace Change, and Thrive in Work Life. She is a psychologist on the faculty of Harvard Medical School and co-founder and co-director of the Institute of Coaching at McLean Hospital. Um, And we're honored again to have you, Dr. David. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. As we talk about the... um, this kind of happiness mentality that everybody seems to be pushing out there. Um, Happiness is, it seems like it's usually just going to be a byproduct of emotional agility, as you've described it. It's, it's a, it's an outcome. It, It shouldn't necessarily be the goal, right? Absolutely. One of the things that I describe in emotional agility is the idea that when we open a newspaper, when we read on the internet, it seems like we are flooded with encouragement about how to be happy. And what can often happen is we then start setting up this idea that we need to be happy, that happiness is a goal, that it's an entitlement, that it's something that we should really aspire to. What's really fascinating is that people who set up happiness, the idea of being happy as a goal, actually over time, paradoxically, tend to become more unhappy. Uh. So there's this idea in psychology which is called amplification, the idea that when you are feeling miserable about something, you're frustrated in something that's going on in your job or in a relationship, and you push those emotions and thoughts aside, often in the service of happiness, that those thoughts and emotions actually um, come back. So there's fascinating experiments showing that when people are asked to not think about something, you know, not think about your anger, not Mm -hmm. think about the chocolate cake that you want because you're trying to lose weight, we know that there is this paradoxical effect where the very thing that we're trying to ignore or avoid actually boomerangs back. 
Um, so there's, there's firstly work within psychology that shows that this idea of trying to be happy and pushing other things aside doesn't work simply in the way that we wired. Um, but there are other problems with the focusing on happiness. Uh, often what it does is it sets up expectations of how things should be. Right. And often expectations are disappointments waiting to happen when we have an expectation that everything is going to go beautifully over Thanksgiving dinner and we set this very, very high bar of what we want, then we're often disappointed. So what's really important, and and just to be clear, I'm not anti-happiness. I'm a fairly happy person. I've written a whole other textbook on happiness. But what's really fascinating is that happiness doesn't come about through pursuing happiness. Happiness rather comes about through pursuing activities and actions that are of intrinsic interest and value to us. So when we are moving in a way, say in the way we parent or in our jobs or in our relationships, in a way that is congruent with our values, it's at that point that we start feeling happier. Um, But it is exactly, as you say, a byproduct rather than a goal. Well, that's great insight. And because it's so easy to just, even when someone's down and you just try to make them happy and just be happy, think of something else. We try to distract them. Talk to us about what what we could do when we're, when we're suffering through some of these emotions of life, just normal parts of life, but we're feeling a little more anxious. We're feeling depressed. We're worried about something. We feel like we're inadequate. What could we do to effectively manage the emotion and the thinking behind it? So the first thing that I would say is we need to actually do what is the least obvious and actually most simple thing, which is so often, and again, I think it is related to a lot of this messaging that we have around us, we will so often question ourselves. Um, I shouldn't be happy. Why am I so unhappy? I'm miserable in my job, but at least I've got a job. And so what we land up doing when we have this is we, in psychology, we have what we call type A thoughts and, or type 1 thoughts and type 2 thoughts. Type 1 thoughts and emotions are when you just have the emotion. You're sad or you're angry or you're frustrated or you feel inadequate. Type 2 is when you start layering extra thoughts and emotions in about your thoughts and emotions. Mm. So I'm sad. I shouldn't be so sad. I'm sad that I'm sad. Um, Why am I anxious? I shouldn't be so anxious. Why am I having this thought? So the first way that we can actually navigate this is to quite literally end any struggle that we have within ourselves as to whether we should or shouldn't have a particular thought and emotion um, by dropping the rope. And what I mean by this is Ending any struggle around whether a thought should or shouldn't be, an emotion should or shouldn't be. It just is. You know, it just is. <laughs> yeah. And what's really fascinating with this is when we look at, for example, people trying to make real changes in their life. So, for example, trying to give up smoking or trying to lose weight. There's a you know wonderful new body of research showing that these kind of cravings, so say you're trying to give up smoking or you're trying to be healthier, that the cravings that you experience every day are are normal. Um, 
And so when people have an approach towards themselves where they say, gee, I'm, I'm having a craving about this thing and it's a normal craving, as opposed to trying to push it aside or not think about it, that those individuals are actually more successful in mm. making the changes that they're trying to make. So really, I think the first part of emotional agility is what I call in the book, emotional agility showing up. And that is being able to just be with yourself without struggle in a way that is compassionate and kind. Because one of the absolute uh, key fundamentals of any type of human change is that acceptance, accepting where we are right now is the key building block to making any change. So mm. acceptance paradoxically is the fundamental marker of your ability to then go and make changes. In fact, so that, that that's what happens in these yeah. groups, right? Like AA and other groups, that there becomes this, this compassionate acceptance about their condition. Yeah. And we, again, we live in a world where it's almost this idea that we need to be living a constant Iron Man or Iron Woman marathon. Right. That we, you know, we shouldn't be kind to ourselves because when we're kind to ourselves and when we face into ourselves in this way, that somehow it symbolizes that we are weak or that we're um, going easy on ourselves or that we're lazy. Whereas actually, when we do prospective studies and we look at people who are going through difficult transitions, you know, people who are going through divorce or people who are going through job loss, individuals who are more compassionate towards themselves, that doesn't mean that they don't like the things that they don't like. It's just that they, they move into a space in themselves where they recognize what they've done and they are gentle with that. That those individuals, number one, are actually more honest and more able to make effective change. Number two, they get through these transitions better. So it almost seems like this idea around acceptance and self-compassion gives you your edge rather than taking it away. Right. You can almost hear people thinking, yeah, no, don't do that because that's just going to make you fat and lazy. Don't be too accepting of yourself. Keep the pressure on. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you know, what's fascinating is even when you look at studies with recidivism and people who are in jail for crimes and you look at do people have self-compassion around what it is that they've done? So they've still done the thing that they've done wrong. They're not, they're not pretending that they haven't. Right. But are they kind of kind towards themselves and acknowledging of their guilt? Or do they experience shame and a lack of self-compassion? And what's fascinating is that individuals who lack self-compassion and who are shameful, so they, they're not able to see what they've done as a behavior, but rather that it is them 100% that they are bad, that they are to be shamed that those individuals actually land up going out and not being rehabilitated. So shame and a lack of self-compassion are predictors of more crime rather than less. And the opposite, that people who are more compassionate, they acknowledge their guilt, they're then able to move into a space where they 
repay their crime, but they are able to move forward productively. Mm. That is, I mean, you can you can see it. You can understand. I think all of us have felt that uh, shame where we beat ourselves up instead of uh, accepting and showing self-compassion. Are there things we can do as parents with our own children to make sure that we're not kind of inducing and, uh, and, and creating this thought process in our children? So absolutely. And I've got a whole chapter in Emotional Agility where I describe some of these uh, core ideas as well as very practical strategies. The first thing that I would say is, that just following on our conversation that we've just had, which is your child child will mess up. You know, there are going to be things that your child does, as we all do because we are all humans, that we do that are incorrect. And it's really important when we're giving feedback to children that we give feedback about behavior rather than feedback that is tied into the individual. So, for example, I am disappointed that you did that particular thing is feedback about the behavior. I am disappointed in you is starting to develop this shame. Mm. So it's basically starting to tie the child's behavior into who they are. And that actually, over the longer term, stops them from being able to recalibrate and be more effective around their behaviors. Another thing that I talk about in the book is that often with the best of intentions, when our children come home from school, they're sad, they're worried, they're anxious, no one would play with me, they have you know, very real worries and real concerns, often with very good intentions, and I talk about my own you know, failures in a sense, in, yeah. in a way, in the book, um, because I'm by no means perfect at this, um, often what we'll do is we will almost feel uncomfortable with our child's discomfort, with our child's sadness. And so we will jump in and we will try to make things right. Mm. You know, I know people wouldn't play with you. I'll play with you. Let's go bake cupcakes. Yeah. Um, And so we do this with very good intention. But really what we know is that even at the age of two and three years old, children have the capacity to start developing the ability to label emotions, to recognize that emotions are transient, that they pass, they're not going to hang around forever, and that they're things that they can do. So a very, very important aspect of helping children to develop emotional agility is to not promote the idea that there are wrong or right emotions, um, but just that your emotions just are, right. and let's feel them and let's label them, and then yeah. what do we want to do about them, and I'm- help the child to help himself or herself. And I love that. And that's one of the great learnings I took out of it was labeling it, putting a name on it. And that that actually puts you in a different place in relation to your emotion as well. Dr. Susan David, thank you so much for your great insights and work. Everybody go check out the book, Emotional Agility, Get Unstuck, Embrace Change, and Thrive in Work Life. Power, folks, understanding your emotion and uh, not not just jumping around them. We'll be back. Continue the discussion. Stick with us. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, did all of those summer vacations run your savings dry? 
Are you dreading this season because you know it means penny-pinching to save up for the holidays? America has the largest economy and is one of the richest countries in the world. So why do so many Americans find themselves in debt and struggling to make ends meet, even if they have pretty well-paying jobs? Well, our producer, Leanna Tan, is on it, and she's going to give us some financial advice from her perspective and teach us five ways we can start saving more and living happier. can't believe you like money, too. We should hang out. I've listened to my friends, coworkers, and fellow Americans complain about empty wallets. I was appalled to read that usgovernmentdebt.us says America will be $19.3 trillion in debt by the end of the year. I ain't got no money. Um, while national debt isn't necessarily the same as the debt in your own home, I think it does reflect how Americans live their lives. I'm saving for a speedboat. It seems like people these days don't know how to save or how to value money. We hold the world ransom for... One million dollars. Don't you think we should maybe ask for more than a million dollars? So here are five ways you can save money and start affording happiness. Be happy with simple things. You know what they say, happiness is a journey, not a destination. All right! Enjoy each moment and each possession for what it is. If you're constantly waiting for something bigger or something better or something newer, you will always be living an unattainable life. Always running and never catching up. So maybe you do only have a few carrot sticks and a tuna sandwich for lunch. Watch up, Doc. But at least it doesn't have the calories of a four-course meal. And your canned tuna probably tastes the same and actually probably is the same as the tuna they use in that expensive cafe you're foregoing. Two! Here, have a dollar. In fact, no, brother man, here, have two. Two dollars means a snack for me, but it means a big deal to you. I suggest that even for just a day or a week, Try living like you don't have any money at all. You're kidding me. That means that you can't go to the movies on the weekend. No! And you can't go to the vending machine for a snack. I don't think I like your attitude, vending machine. I know. It sounds hard. But you'll realize how many things around you actually don't cost any money. And how many resources you and your community already have. If will beat anyone's advertised price or your mattress is free! You probably tend to spend just because you can, not because you need to. We live in a first world country, people. You don't have to go foraging for food or water. And that's really all you need to last you throughout the week. Three! Don't waste. Reuse and recycle. Recycle, reduce, reuse, and close the loop. We can close the loop. Do you really need that $300 pair of designer jeans? What's the difference between that and the $15 pair at your local thrift store? The fashion industry has been behind every major political assassination over the last 200 years. Maybe a small stitching on the back pocket. Hmm, have an empty bedazzled pocket or a full off-brand pocket? And before you throw something out, just ask yourself if you can make use of it again or if it's worth spending the money to replace it if you don't. We can make a difference. Ideas aren't good or bad. They're just free. Like your dinner leftovers. Those can definitely be used again the next day for lunch. Milk was a bad choice. It pains me to see that so many people just empty a pot of pasta in the garbage can because they don't have room in the fridge. Did you know a recent Bloomberg article said that America wastes $160 billion in food every year? Ugh! 
So painful. Four. Find a worthy cause or activity to put your money into. Are you serious right now? Dude, this is for charity. Whether that means donating to a charity, a church, or your kid's local soccer team. Give it away, give it away, give it away now. You'll be more driven to save if it's not just for yourself. Then every time you pull out your wallet to splurge on more scrapbook supplies or throw pillows, you'll think of the poor orphan children or the kid down the block who just might not get his soccer uniform. Let it go guilt it's a great spending referee find a job you enjoy going to i love this place a lot of people give up those family vacations working less hours or working their dream job because they can't afford it it's a really sad life when you can't afford happiness You promised the children some real time here i just got here what are you talking about if you merely go to work to get that paycheck Life will be dismal for at least eight hours of your day, every day. But if you find a job you like, then it's more like you're filling your day with a hobby, and then you're pleasantly surprised to get money on top of that. Well, maybe you could come work for me. Really? Sure, I guess we could use a janitor. This will help you rely less on money and learn that it doesn't control your life. So, my advice is to fill your life with things that make you happy, especially in situations where you have complete control. And then you won't notice as much when money comes and goes, and frankly, you won't care. Then you can start using money as a tool, rather than have it control you and consume your home and your country. So, don't worry. Even if the government does go up in flames, no matter where you live or what you own, you can be happy. So enjoy your carrot sticks, and don't forget Billy down the street who just might not get his soccer uniform. Well, I'm Leanna Tan, and that's my little tangent. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Hour number three of the program. And man, are we locked and loaded. We got a lot to talk about today. It is, by the way, National Thank You Day. Thank you for being mm-hmm. Thanks, Terry. Thanks to you, Jeffrey. Thanks, Sadie. What did I do? Thanks, Grandpa. You Thanks, were a Jim friend Bob. when he was in need. You were a friend. All right. When I was down, you lifted me up. Really? Mm-hmm. Do I do any sort of lifting up of anyone? You remember that one day it was raining outside and... Uh-huh. You watched while I walked from the car carrying all that stuff, and you watched, remember, and you just kept watching, and I finally got over, and then you opened the door for me. Oh, yeah, yeah. That was nice. I didn't want to get wet, so I, I was helping as I, as I was available. Yeah. Thank you for that. <laughs> Thank you for playing interference, talking to the peeps. I try to head people off, make during, sure they don't bother you. During nap time. There's breaking news. What? Donald Trump releases letter from his doctor. Another one? Yes. What did it say? The GOP candidate takes cholesterol-lowering drugs and is overweight. Really? There's probably more, but that's what they put in there. Isn't that everything we figured out with Dr. Oz? Yeah, pretty much. Doesn't seem like breaking news. Breaking news. Is Dr. Oz his doctor? Yeah. Is he one of them? No, Dr. Oz has a TV show. He's got to put him on staff. He is a cardiologist, but yeah. Could you imagine Dr. Oz in the White House? Wow. Surgeon General. He could be the Surgeon General. Yeah. Why does the Surgeon General wear a uniform? 
Because they can. Okay. And people find you more attractive in a uniform. Really? Just ask Sadie. Okay. She loves a guy in uniform. Hmm. I saw her, the air conditioning guy came in. <laughs> and she's like, whoa, hey, Chuck. Why does the air conditioning guy have a, a American flag patch on his shoulder? Because he's proud to be an American. It just seems like... Sadie's wagging her finger, saying no, because she's desperately in love with her husband. Right. Who also wears a uniform. Scout uniform. <laughs> Eagle Scout. Great uh, great show coming up for you today. We're, we will be talking with uh, Diane Barth about struggling relationships and some of the things you can do to, to better, you know, smooth things over. Number one thing, watch out and manage your expectations. Hmm. I thought you'd just say, yes, honey, you're right. That no. Usually, that usually fixes a lot well, of- Well, no, because sometimes your wife's not right. Well, yeah, I mean, but, it's happened. Like but she's always right. You have to measure potential outcome and really, is it that bad? And most of the time it isn't. Yeah. So yeah, go ahead. You'll figure it out. But you you want to have the expectations managed because if you think like your marriage will be perfect, yeah. then when it's not, it's, it will seem more negative. Well- but It's better that you realize that you know there's going to be ups and downs- and there will be a day when your wife is finally wrong. Oh, she's been wrong quite a bit. I just choose when I point it, point it out. Well, you just said it on the air. She knows. You're dead. No, she's We're getting fine. a finger wag from Sadie, so Sadie's still we must not finger. be speaking okay. the truth. So we will, we'll be getting to that. Plus, we'll visit our good brethren at BYU Sports Nation, find out what's coming up on their show at the top of the hour. And, of course, the hero story. Plus, we have to update you on the Russia uh, excursion that they're trapped. A polar bear family, I guess, has trapped a bunch of um, what do we call these people? Researchers. Researchers. Scientists. scientists are trapped and they can't get out a of pack of polar bears. Yeah, they yeah. can't get out because there's polar bears. But we heard of the story yesterday, hmm. and we sent an idea that they tried. Oh, nice! And it worked. So it, we helped. Mm-hmm. Nice. And it came from a movie that Jeff had seen. Okay. So. It's pretty cool. There's so much wisdom in movies. So much wisdom. And it totally worked on the polar bear. So we'll, we'll go talk about how we saved the entire scientific community and the polar bears, quite honestly, because that could have gotten ugly. So we'll get to all of that. But first, we must go to Sadie Nelson, find out what's going on in the headlines around the country. Sadie? In order to prevent and treat head injuries among football players, the NFL says it will spend $100 million for independent medical research and engineering advancements. NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell said Wednesday the funding is in addition to the $100 million the league has already pledged for medical research of brain injuries and CTE. The NFL is also establishing an independent scientific advisory board to engage in clear, a clear process to identify and support the most compelling proposals for scientific, scientific research into concussions, head injuries, and their long-term effects. The Obama administration will increase the number of refugees it will allow into the United States over the next year to 110,000, an increase of more than 57% since 2015. A State Department official told NBC News the move is consistent with our belief that all countries should do more to help the world's most vulnerable people. A senior White House official said at least 40,000 of the refugees are from South Asia and the Near East, with many of them likely from Syria, and they will undergo a rigorous screening before they can enter the U.S. Uh, Hillary Clinton's newest book is a complete flop by the publishing industry standards. The New York Times reports Stronger Together has only sold 2,912 copies in the first week of sales compared to her other book, which sold 85,000 copies in the first week. So that's not doing very well. 
And finally, local authorities said a giant inflatable cow stolen from Phoenix Chick-fil-A was located and returned to the restaurant. I know. Big sigh of relief there. There was was a cow on the run. (laughs) It is uh, 350 pounds, 24 feet tall. Um, and they're not sure how they managed to get the cow home in the first place. Um, but it was stolen on September 4th, and the investigation is still ongoing. Oh, boy. Was this cow found painting a freeway sign? And I saw that cow. Yeah, I thought I did, too. Wow. It I didn't know they keeps, were looking for that cow. It misspelling chicken, either. too. Yeah, that cow yeah, needs to learn to spell. Yeah. There's a C Let's go back to school. Now, they found that inflatable cow in a guy's backyard, and he said he found it at, at a yard sale. That's what he told the police. Well, the so. funny thing is, is like you're not going to see a cow in the backyard. <laughs> well, I don't think it was inflated. I think it was like into a bag of some yeah. kind. But he just bought it. He with bought a receipt. it. He bought it at a yard sale, so he's not sure where it came from. So it was deflated. So it was a skinny cow. Yeah, it was a skinny cow. I got it from Target. <laughs> you got your cow. from It was Target. in those dollar bins up front. Hey, uh, Sadie, thank you for the wonderful news report. Again, celebrating Thank You Day. Always say thank you. Would Thank you, you. Would you? These like... are words of respect. Words that make day-to-day living go smoothly. Exactly. Would you like a robotic, self-driving shopping cart? Absolutely. That would be a good idea for you? If I could have it waiting right by my car when I pull in. Walmart has patented a robotic device that would create self-driving shopping carts, giving customers free hands while they shop. How great. The bad side is it would cut back it make Walmart be able to cut back in staff because ah. they wouldn't need as many people to round up carts and do other things so they could cut back and it would, again technology so replacing jobs. people I don't feel like I can ever find an employee there but you know they're there somewhere <laughs> they're around <laughs> they're all hiding will this cart make it so that my kids can't ram the back of my ankle and it, my heel. It would probably have that kind of technology because it Fantastic. would know where the aisles were Let's and be it. able to just kind Let's of follow it. you around. So. It's worth losing a job for that. And are we bad parents if we put our kids in there, let it drive by itself, and go check out another section? I just go, okay, we'll see you there. Just just program it, see you in electronics, and then just walk back there and the cart comes back. That'd you know awesome. what? The coolest thing now, though, just get online on some Walmarts and they'll do all the shopping for you. Yeah. And then you pull up. And then you see an employee that just brings it to your car. And then when you pull in, you scream to your kids, hey! And then they all come help. And then you go take a nap. Wow. I mean, it sounds really lazy. Yeah, it really does. But some well, say providing. it's heaven. Exactly. You're providing. You're doing your job. I'm a provider. Job. Yeah. I'm not here to put you, the groceries away. You make I provided this them. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, crazy story out of Russia. Um Russia is preparing an emergency delivery for a group of scientists surrounded by polar bears on an Arctic island, according to Slate News Agency. The expedition on the island in Russia, in Russia's northern, northern sea sent news over the weekend that around 10 polar bears had surrounded their base and they had no means of scaring the animals off. The head of the five-person science team, they're trapped. Hmm. They're trapped. And we heard about this yesterday. I mean, how do you get rid of polar bear? Shoo! Shoo! Get out of my kayak. Do you remember that bear? Get out. Bear! Get out of my kayak. So we, Jeff is the one that had the idea. I had never, I didn't remember the movie. Yeah. But Mars Jeff, Attacks. Mars Attacks. So what's, how does, what's the premise? So it's directed by Tim Burton. It's basically a spoof of 
old science fiction B movies and uh you know, I, I after watching a few Tim Burton movies, I've learned some great lessons, like in Pee-wee's Big Adventure, uh, don't forget to lock up your bike. Hmm. Batman, don't go to the opera with your parents. And Mars Attacks, we learned how to uh, destroy aliens. Wow. So the way you destroy the aliens, um, they destroyed the aliens, was they would just play some music, and then the music was so irritating that it ended up blowing up the heads of the aliens. So you said yesterday, why don't we try this? Why don't they try this with the bears? We sent it over, they tried it, and it worked. But we told them, if we give you the idea, you have to record and video the scene. And they did. And they did. And we happen to just have the video right here that we will play for you. Now, just so you know, the music, you have to choose certain music because not all music will scare the bears away. So the music that must be played is music from Slim Whitman. It's Indian Love Call from Slim Whitman. Here's the video. That's scary. Calling you. There they go. <laughs> Work like a charm. They're not happy. They couldn't get out of there fast enough. Yeah, that would do it. Indian love call. Huh. You know what I would do when your your wife's having the baby? What's P- that? Play little Slim Whitman. No, we're not doing that. That'll get that baby out. Or get me punched, whichever. I'm just trying to stay on her good side through that whole experience. Yeah, it's possible she could find it soothing. No, a no. lot. Of, no? no, no, a lot of people find it soothing. Uh, apparently, that took care of the problem. That and a, a ship, a passing Russian ship, um, also deployed a helicopter to try to shoo him away, mm. and they shot flares near him. And then they release the dogs. Oh. But if I'm a betting man, yeah. it was Slim Whitman. I think Slim Whitman did it? Yeah. Okay. Let's hear that one more time because... Hunks and speakers off the helicopter? It's and... cool. They The bears didn't know what to think at first. They're just... They're almost starstruck. They're in pain. Yeah. They're probably like, what is going on? When I'm calling you... Oh, there they go. That's so cute. They just started sprinting. That's mm. nice. Again, problem solved. All you had to do. It, it, it's scary that a human made that sound at one point. Yeah. The, the thing, which the, the and, bears are the. And then other people paid to listen to it. Yeah. No, but that's Slim Whitman, man. He was the bomb. Apparently. Literally, <laughs> he was the bomb. That's why you, people need more attention to pop culture. If they had, if we hadn't watched Mars Attacks, we Oop. never would have known. We wouldn't know. It's a great deterrent. Great deterrent. Um, also, time for one more uh, fun little story for you here. Uh, when when it comes down to it, everybody loves Brady Bunch. You know, right? nobody loves it more than me. I was raised on Brady Bunch. Los Angeles police uh, sources have reported that the iconic Studio City home used in the Brady Bunch, all the exterior shots of the Brady Bunch, that home was burglarized Wednesday night. 
the elderly woman who currently lives was scared and you know she ended up having to chase the prowlers off the suspects first tried to gain entrance to the home through the windows before shattering a single glass door or sliding glass door which i'm sure was the door that uh marcia got hit in the face with the ball right right by that door yeah or it might be in the telephone room and the TV room where the telephone was. So wait, what was the name of this woman? Um, her name was Alice. Alice. Yeah. Her boyfriend's normally there, Sam. Mm-hmm. Right. The butcher, uh, he wasn't there that night. So Alice had to chase him off. 70-year-old resident. Pretty sure Alice would be older than 70. Yeah. It couldn't be the original Alice, could it? No. 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 Anyway, a little pop culture for you. We are going to take a break. When we come back, Diane Barth will be joining us. We're talking how to rescue a struggling relationship. Heaven knows we need it. Stick with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends. Uh, If you are struggling in your relationship, that is probably a song you won't want to play because that is going to uh, create problems, as it does for many. Joining us on the phone is Diane Barth. She is a licensed clinical social worker, and along with leading private study groups in New York and workshops for therapists around the country, Diane has published articles in the Clinical Social Work Journal, Psychoanalytic Dialogues. She's also um, a regular contributor on Psychology Today, and she's also written the book entitled Daydreaming, Unlock the Creative Power of Your Mind. Diane Barth, thank you so much for being with us today. Well, thank you for having me back, man. Good to have you back. Uh, now, did you like that Slim Whitman song? I liked it. I liked it. I started to chuckle. That's how they get rid of polar bears, apparently. Just really? in case you ever need it in New York. Hey, talk to us about your latest, uh, the latest writing that uh, you put out, How to Rescue a Struggling Relationship. There really are so many things that get in the way um, of our relationships. What are the top things that you hear as a professional uh, that couples bring to you to, to, to fix or to discuss? Well, it's really interesting. So traditionally, it was that, um, you know, it was uh, children, money, and sex, and not necessarily in that order. Um, but uh, this, this um, research that's recently been done says that really almost all of these things can be fixed if you pay attention to something that's much in, in, on the one hand, much simpler, and on the other hand, much more difficult, which is um, the issue of self-esteem and self-actualization in a relationship. Hmm. Like self-actualization, that reminds me of um, the Maslow hierarchy of needs. Yes, exactly. So is that exactly. the same thing? It is, and it's interesting that you have, uh, exactly, I mean, so Maslow's hierarchy of needs starts with sort of the basic needs for food and shelter, um, and then at the very top is the need for self-actualization and self-esteem. And, what, and these um, researchers decided to call 
their model of, um, of marital difficulties and relationship difficulties, the suffocation model, because when you get to the top of that hierarchy, you uh, run out of oxygen, mm. or the oxygen is much thinner. So what they, their theory is that the best way to, um, uh, to resuscitate or to rescue a marriage these days is because we look to our partners for um, uh, both a sense of our own self-esteem and also for a sense that we can move forward and be who we want to be, whether it's as a parent or as a community person or, as a, or in a career um, the, the rescue has to do with being able to sort of provide more oxygen in these areas. So it's, it's almost like, because Maslow's hierarchy discussed the fact that our basic needs need to be met, the physical needs, food, shelter, clothing. Eventually we move up higher to, you know, a connection, relationship needs, and then right. self-actualization. So is, right. is what we're running into with this theory is the idea that what makes relationships difficult today is we're now asking our partners to be a major part of our self-actualization. Yes, exactly. Which exactly. is the hardest, most ethereal level of all of our development, and yet I'm, I'm expecting my partner to bring that to me. It is indeed, and it gets more complicated because um, you're also providing it for your partner. Right. And so it's a really interactive process. And if your partner is not... Um, you know, massaging your self-esteem, you're not going to massage theirs either. Mm. Yeah, so who's becomes a, a real vicious cycle? Whose self-actualization wins? Right, right? it's like the <laughs> battle of exactly. Holy cow! Unbelievable. Yeah. And, I mean, you see this all the time, right? Yeah. So, so you see it with a couple who's just had a baby, and all of a sudden, one of them is paying more attention to the baby and less attention to the partner. And so then instead of being able to say, you know, okay, let me support, and it is that, you know, these days it can be the wife or the husband. It's, it's, um, it's not uh, so gender uh, determined anymore. But instead of saying, um, you know, I have enough self-esteem to be able to support my partner as they provide the care and love and, and um, needs for the baby, um, some of us, you know, and, and I think this happens to everybody at some time. We feel like, oh, this is being taken away from me. Mm. I used to get that attention. Now the baby's getting the attention. Right. And then we become critical of our partner. We become critical of the baby instead of being able to be in a partnership where everybody's sort of supporting everybody in the process. It, um, I, I guess it's, it's funny because if, if I went to maybe a third world country or another place in the world that doesn't have as much as we have here in the yeah. West, they, they may not be looking for self-actualization. <laughs> they yes. might just be looking for dinner. Right, exactly. exactly. Right, and a safe think, home and a... Yeah. yeah. Now, I actually believe that probably if we were anthropologists or sociologists and we dug a little bit, that we would see that it's not really such a clear-cut, separate right. hierarchy, that even when you're looking for dinner, you also would like some love and affection, mm-hmm. and you also would like some, you know, giving you some value. And the interesting thing about the theory is it's called the suffocation right. model. And right. that's what I see a lot. I use a metaphor about smoke and fire and how a lot of people just can't breathe because they're not 
they're they're fighting too much in the smoke instead of dealing with the real issues. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, exactly. So they are suffocating in their marriage. How do we get out of that? How do we start creating more air and space? Well, it's actually very simple in theory. (laughs) Yeah. Which is that, I mean, and I see this with couples when I'm working with them all the time. As soon as I can get them to start to talk about the things that they actually still in this moment admire about each other, you can almost watch them both start to breathe. Hmm. There, there's a, there, you know, you can see the oxygen starting to fill their lungs. Um, because I think that really we, we don't usually marry somebody or become totally involved with somebody who we don't admire on some level right. and who we don't have some... Um, excuse me, some sense of of, um, real, their value. But when we're feeling like they're not valuing us or we're not getting what we need from them or when we're feeling competitive with them about, so they've got just got a promotion and instead of the old days where we could be pleased that, um, you know, our spouse got a promotion so it means more money for the family, these days, a lot of couples are two career couples, and so the other person feels like, oh, what's wrong with me that I didn't get a promotion? Hmm. That's so, so true. As, as soon as a couple can start to express some of their admiration for each other and, and positively reinforce each other, the vicious cycle actually starts to diminish, and the, um, and the air gets clearer, and they can breathe again. And it's, I guess it, is it a, it's expression and then... Um, I guess, reception of what the person's saying. And and sometimes, too, I guess it's believing what they're saying. Exactly. Now, that's a really good point. And it's really hard to give that kind of positive reinforcement to somebody who doesn't believe it. Mm. And And that, again, is a two-way street. Do they not believe it because you've been so critical that they can't believe you're saying something positive? Right. Or do they also not believe it because their self-esteem is, is, you know, down in the dumps right now? And what what needs to happen to make that improve? Mm. It really is. I think it's an interesting theory and insight. Again, we're speaking with Diane Barth, and we'll take a break, come back, continue this discussion about how to rescue a struggling relationship. Uh, One simple way might be to understand the suffocation model and how to uh, start to validate our partner and and uh, maybe give that air to our partner. Stick with us. Continuing Relationship 101. We'll be back. Welcome back, friends. Today we are speaking again with Diane Barth, our good friend, licensed clinical social worker, uh, from the New York area and uh, teaches workshops there, leads private study groups as well, and is the author of the book entitled Daydreaming, Unlock the Creative Power of Your Mind. Diane, thank you so much and welcome back. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you. You've been talking to us about uh, how to rescue a struggling relationship. One part of that is, I, I guess, it, people need to be... they They need... They need to be understood. They need to be valued. They need to be appreciated. And when they're not, they start to suffocate. Yes. What else can we do to promote self-esteem, to promote self-actualization in our relationships? Well, it's, it's um, an interesting, again, um, finding from this uh, research that was done out at um, Northwestern University 
one of the things they said is that we are so busy um, actualizing ourselves, actually, in, in our modern world and in this society, that we don't put enough time and energy and attention into our relationship itself. Hmm. So, you know, I mean, I don't know how you all are feeling about this, but certainly I'm hearing this all yeah. the time, you know. I don't have time to do this. So I've got to take my kids to soccer and my kids to, you know, French lessons, and then I've got my meetings and my husband's got his meetings, and, you know, and people don't have time to actually breathe life into their relationship. It's almost like you need relationship actualization. Exactly, exactly. And we're so caught up in the self and the child actualization that yep. the marriage fails. We th- that's right. And I think we take for granted um, that the marriage is going to be there just because it's supposed to be. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, what's what? she going to do, leave me? Right, exactly. Right. And yeah. yes, that right. is. Right, <laughs> exactly. 70% of the time it is right. her leaving. Right, um, yeah. That's it, though, huh? It, so it's the time that ends up suffocating. And I guess it's this idea that it's almost like we're trying to we're trying to fulfill other needs by this self-actualization instead of realizing that a lot of it's going to come from having a really safe, loving relationship. Exactly, exactly. Yep. Hmm. Is there, uh, what do you see in your practice? What are some things that you do? I guess part of it is just talking about it, getting it out in the air. That is part of it. But one of the things I get people to talk about is what did they do before they got so busy? Um, Did they sit and watch football together? Did they, um, did they go for walks together? Did they go to the movies together? In other words, you don't have to sit and talk right? Mm-hmm. What, in fact, you actually need is to spend time together. And so I encourage, you know, this is, this is an old idea, but it actually is even more valid today than it's ever been, which is I encourage people to have date nights. Yeah. To, and, and to go out, and <laughs> one couple say to me, um, yeah, but what will we talk about? <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, so you go to the movies, and then you can talk about the movie over dinner. Yeah. And just and relate and almost how great to not have to talk about something but just connect, even just exactly. validate each other. Exactly. That's right. And, and that, I think, again, we're so goal-driven these days that we don't think about the fact that actually not talking about anything serious is really fine. It's lovely, right. you know? That's not what you did when you were when you were it, it, when any of us are in those romantic sort of early stages of a relationship. We don't sit and talk about uh, something. I mean, we do have serious conversations, but we also sit and look at the stars, or um, or go to a dumb movie together, or you know, or go to a concert. Even making time for each other says a lot. Yes. Exactly. And sometimes I guess that's all you need to know is that you'll always have someone there that will make the time. That's right. That's right. And that gets lost. And I, I think part of what um, I, it, the, these researchers don't say this exactly, but I think that part of what is happening is just what you said before, that we take for granted that the, that the basic needs are going to be met. And we yeah. take it for granted that our spouse or our partner is going to meet those needs. And really... It, taking it for granted is not a good idea because um, nobody wants to be taken for granted. Mm-mm. And I, that's, I guess, the key. I mean, you could almost see that uh, we could get to a point in our minds where we don't even think we need the relationship. Right. 
Right. Which is every, you know, you're taking care of everything else anyway. Yes. I actually, uh, I have a personal story about that one. My um, husband and I, when, when, when our son was very little, we were both working, and I felt like I was doing everything. And, of course, I was yeah. getting madder and madder. And he got, um, he had to have some surgery, and all of a sudden he was incapacitated. Uh, and all of a sudden I realized how much he had been doing. Unbelievable, yeah. Which I was completely not aware of and not at all grateful for. But I'll tell you, <laughs> once he recovered, I was very grateful and very verbal about the things he was doing and how grateful I was for Right. Him. I guess we, we need to be maybe keeping our eyes open for that as well, right? Like, let's like check our stories. Yes, yes. And, but it's exactly what you said. I mean, we, we tend to think that we are doing the whole thing or or we could do it by ourselves and um and it's yeah it's very important to check that out because most likely you're not and most likely on the other hand thinking that for either partner can then push the other one farther away oh it's so true and then then you're playing catch up and once right. you're kind of behind once you're i mean it's it's almost like i guess somebody that really was suffocating you know if all of a sudden you realize you've been suffocating for 10 years there's going to be damage yes yes and then you got to fix but, that but the thing that i have seen is that couples can go along for a long time without realizing that that they're doing damage to themselves or yeah. to each other or to the relationship but once you actually, if you make a conscious decision to start um, trying to bring some air back into the relationship, and the two really simple things are to pay attention to the relationship and to start to notice the things that you do admire and appreciate about your partner, um, it actually, the damage can be undone. Hmm. Yeah. Um, not always and not, you know, not if it's too extreme, but... But it can be undone. Especially if you want it to be undone. That's right. That's right. You can pretty much make anything happen if you, if you want it to. And are willing to work at if it. If both of you, I guess, are wanting yeah. it and willing. Well, I think it's fascinating. And again, awesome insight from you, Diane. Uh, Diane, where can they reach you? What's your website? Uh, it's, um, oh, I never know. Is it www.dianebarth.com? Or .net. .net, yes, yeah, thank .net. you. Yeah, .net. I wanted to make <laughs> sure that, that was my it. fingertips, yeah. yeah. I know, I know. And again, they can find you on Psychology Today, <laughs> too, as well. Psychology Today, yes. Diane, and thank there's you. There's also a link to the Psychology Today website on my, on my web on your uh, web page. On your page. Awesome. Thank you again, Diane, and keep up the great work there in New York. We will, uh, we will have you back on the show, I'm sure, very quickly. We'll take a break as well and come back. When we come back, we'll visit our good buddies at BYU Sports Nation, find out what's coming up on their show at the top of the hour. Stick with us. send it down to our good buddies at BYU Sports Nation with a, with a little Slim Whitman. The name of this song is called Cattle Call. Mm. Just makes you feel like going home, doesn't it? Let's shoot it down to our good buddies, Spencer and Jerem. Hello, gentlemen. Hello, Matthew. Did you like uh, the Cattle Call from Slim Whitman? I did. I think it's a perfect fit for something that happened to me uh, recently. What? 
I, I was invited to an open call uh, at this uh, modeling agency in Salt Lake City. Really? And I felt like a cow. Did <laughs> a modeling agency? You haven't told me this. What, what? were they looking for? Uh, I, I'm not sure specifically what they're looking for, but uh, some lady contacted me on social media and said, I really like your look. I want you to come to this meeting. Well, then. And I was like, okay. Mm. But I knew it was like, listen, I this is, these people do this all of the time, okay? It's kind of a scam, whatever. But I went in there. And I was like, I feel like I'm going to be branded and tagged because there I are being all branded, these oh, people around oh, me. <laughs> I hate like... branding. It's the worst day they and dip you. And I was you. 10 years older than everybody else there. Holy cow. Did they, was it awkward? Like, did they say, hey, so do you lift weights? Well, they're hey, like, can you take off shirt? They're man? like, tell, tell me about yourself. What do you do? We and have like, some audio from the actual casting yeah, call right here. Yeah, Let's hear it. There were some birds there too. Mm-hmm. Was it outside? Was it at a cor- was it in a corral or a? Oh, there, there we yeah. go. Yeah, they, they just that say sound. they say just run, and then all of a sudden these eight year olds are throwing ropes around <laughs> your waist, tying you down. Are we going to be on like, Disney? Well, how did I get to the rodeo? Were you were you going to be a dad on the Disney Channel? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. Really, I don't know. I, You're not a country at music the, star. At the behest of my wife, I went. Yeah, and I was like, eh. She's like, just go and see what just it's about. Just go. Like, okay. So I go, and you know, the first question out of their mouth is, "Do you have any tattoos?" Like, uh, nope. You're like, well, this one on my lower back. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's been hard to remember. They're asking all these questions, and then they're like, "Well, what do you do?" I'm like, uh, "I'm a sportscaster." And they're like, "Oh, so um, do some sports for do us." You have any, do you have any TV experience? And I'm like, "No." <laughs> uh, yes, yes, I do. Like, oh, okay, well, that's a positive. Yeah. You know, they, knew not, they knew nothing about me. And I was just. They didn't yeah. watch I just, the show every day. I was just grouped in with what all the these heck? other people. They don't know what they did. As they had a way no idea. to make, oppor- like, as an opportunity to make money for them. They have no idea what they had right in front of them. Oh, they, please. I mean, they didn't, there's very few men that can get away with a, a tattoo on his lower back. <laughs> <laughs> very True few that. men pull that off. It was. But, <laughs> It was very interesting. You do it expertly. Hey, um, I have to ask you guys about this uh, audio. I'm going to play some audio for you from Monday Night Football, the game between the 49ers and the Rams. Oh, Kevin Harlan. Kevin Harlan. Third and four, looks into the nickel of San Francisco. It's the middle of a boring game. Hey, somebody has run out on the field. And a guy runs out on the field. ball in a hat and a red shirt. Now he takes off the shirt. He's running down the middle by the 50. He's at the 30. He's bare-chested and banging his chest. Now he runs the opposite way. He runs at the 50. He runs at the 40. But there he goes. The 20. They're chasing him. They're not going to get him. Waving his arms. Somebody stop Look that out. man. Here comes the blue coat, Kevin. Oh, they got him. Here comes the blue from the coat. Left. Oh, and they tackle him at the 40-yard line. They I got hope him. it was worth it, my friend, because you've got a night in the clink coming up. Kevin Harlan is a legend. In that, fact, we've both interacted with him personally. Have you? Such, a, such cool a good dude. dude. Yeah. Yes, such well, a good guy. That, so what a funny call, right? The, how rare is that, that they actually give him any attention? Well, well here's the thing. Because it the game was, was terrible. It was a horrible game. <laughs> and he later said, you cut that part out, but he later said, that's the most exciting thing that's happened on the field tonight. <laughs> Did he really? Yes. <laughs> oh, that's funny. That kid, That guy's life is made, though. Because now Kevin Harlan's done a little play-by-play of him 
you know, taken off his shirt. Normally it's like, don't acknowledge them, don't empower them right. with attention, dot, 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 right? Have you guys ever done that at the soccer or the volleyball no. or baseball or football? I have not. Well, you're still I have young. I've some funny things in sporting events, but I've never done anything like that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come to one of your games, and I'm going to run out there. Take my shirt off, and I want you to do the play-by-play. Now he's banging his chest. They're not going to get him. Now he gets tackled by Kai Nakua. <laughs> Breaks his jaw and is in the hospital for six weeks. <laughs> so um, you guys, you're, you're still doing your show today, though, right? We are. Anything, uh, anything new? Anything? I'm insulted that you would even ask. It's... I mean, I always wonder. I mean, <laughs> This is the first time you were insulted. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I'm trying to change my emotions from day to day, right? Yeah. Just to mix it up. You're trying to mix it up a bit. I, I mean, I'm, ins- I'm insulted today. I'm told my show could go any day. So every day I'm like, hey, you guys still doing yours? I'll do mine. <laughs> You're told it could go <laughs> any day. <laughs> it could go in any moment. What, uh, what's on your show today? Let's see. There's about, a lot going on. How about guess day. a Big 12 update for you? Really? Oh, yeah. Is there is yep. there actual news to update? Oh, there is some news. Okay. Because of something that Oklahoma President David Boren oh, said. Oh, boy. Do I want to hear? Okay. I'll I don't know listen. if you do want to hear I'll it. Listen. I'll listen. And I'm not going to uh, tell you exactly no, what no, it is. I'll wait till top of the hour. But the Big 12 is back in the news. They did uh, release all 11 candidates that they have spoken to in regards to potential expansion. We know okay. that BYU... Was one of them, and they were in Dallas, and uh, they were one of the 11, and they met with Big 12 officials last week. Mm-hmm. So what did David Bourne say that makes you more or less confident about the Big 12 uh, mm-hmm. stuff? Plus, yes. three guests. Uh, Matt Stevens, UCLA radio analyst. Mitchell Jurgens, the leading receiver in the game at Utah. And also the uh, passer of a completed fake field goal. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, he was really good in the home opener last year. We asked him about that. Plus, uh, Ronnie Jones-Perry of the ninth-ranked women's volleyball team, who happened to go to my high school as well, Copper Hills. So yeah, awesome. fancy that. Really? But she's on the show. That's weird, Jerem. I don't yeah. book the guests. Mm-hmm. Somebody's them. pulling hey, their weight. Hey, Ben, I really think it would be important if we get a fellow Copper Hills High School uh, <laughs> alum on the show. I think she's the first one ever. What's a Copper Hills? What's the mascot? The Grizzlies, man. Grizzlies. And Grizzlies. it's named Copper Hills because of the copper mine. Because the, gri- the largest Bingham open is a pit high school. Yeah, in the exactly. world. Exactly. You can see it from space. <laughs> what they always said, and I was like, is that real? Like, I've never asked an astronaut. Yeah. Is that how that You can how? see the Luxor, the Great Wall of China, the Luxor Light, the Great Wall of China, the Bingham Copper Pit. I'm like, no, come on. Come on. Come on. Dude, do, do, is that how astronauts talk? Rubbing space and our tongues don't work the same. Yeah, how in the world did Lou Holtz get on one of the? Uh, Was Lou they Holtz They can't even an see to get home because there's so much spit on the window. <laughs> Somebody needs to clean this window off. Uh, <laughs> the other the other day we did a bunch of impersonations. Finally on BYU Sports. Yes. did you? The, yes. At the end of the show, we did. You unleashed I did the Lou Holtz. Spencer did. Uh, John Gruden and uh, Adam Sandler. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah I, awesome. I did my. I did my Scottish. And Scottish. My Scottish Mike Myers. Did you do that when you were auditioning for the Disney Channel shows? I wasn't auditioning for the Disney Channel show. Literally, they looked at me and they were like, you look a lot younger than your age. And I was like, okay, do you have any Thanks. tattoos? Nope. <laughs> You're like, do Wow, you could one? be marketable for us. Oh, All you need to do uh-huh. is give us a bunch of money to create a portfolio. Nice. Yeah, yeah. You were played, <laughs> nice. my friend. I'm out. <laughs> You were You're played. Like, I'm actually doing summer sales instead. I'm so. out. 
Do you have any experience uh, in media and television? You no, should have just said no just a little bit. No, unless you count, you know, like, I don't know, a decade. A you should have said no, and then you're like, oh, yeah, I got out of there early. You wanna want to see my want? tattoo wiggle? Yeah. <laughs> yeah Watch <exactly>. this. <laughs> I'll show you something. I'll show you a tattoo movie. Um, well, guys, it's going to be a great show. I can already tell. Oh, it's, it's going to be exciting. Oh, by the way, yeah. our Twitter question today, you need to pick – the impact side. Will offense or defense have a greater impact Ooh. on the outcome of Saturday's game? Ooh. There's some serious statistical awesomeness dealing with that very topic that we will get into. You will be sharing the awesomeness. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Yeah. Okay, that's the top of the hour. Thanks, guys, for having uh, taking time with me. I'm going to give you a fist bump right now. Okay. Thank you. Did you get Pound it? it. Got it. Pound it. Thanks, boys. Have a great show. I'm telling you, they're locked and loaded. They would be, they should do play by play. I'm going to run out, take my shirt off during one of their events that they're doing play by play on, and they better announce it. Well, now that you've said it, you've got to back it up. Got to do it. (laughs) For sure. What else? Hey, I did a little fist bump for them because of a new Guinness Book of World Records, apparently. 300 people in Alaska are looking to raise awareness of homelessness. And they have a new record, a world record, by fist bumping. Fist bump. What people do sometimes when they're excited or pumped up. <laughs> fist bump. A Guinness World Records representative verified that each of the fist bumps passed along a line of registered participants in a fenced-off area Saturday. An improper fist bump could have meant disqualification. Heaven forbid. And the United Way of Anchorage organized the event. Um, And when you think about it, that's a world record? I mean, it's not like he jumped the Grand Canyon, for heaven's sakes. So they just got 300 people together. They all did a fist bump. Yeah. And it's a record. Yeah. Right. What's happening to Guinness? It's I think it's being ruined. You know what you need to do? What? Next time you are speaking, yeah, and there's going to be a thousand people there or so. That'll be Friday night. Just ask everybody really quickly to give each other a fist bump, and you've got the record right but there. But they have to do it the right way. There's a proper way to do it, which is why you have to be verified. There's a whole protocol for fist bumpery. You've probably never heard, of, heard it called that. We've had a great show. I don't care what the Nielsen ratings say. It's been it's been a good show. We've learned a lot about Digit the gorilla. We've learned about how to get rid of polar bears. All you need is Slim Whitman. Let Slim Whitman and play the song Indian Love Call. And if that doesn't get those polar bears out of your yard, I think it'll work with vermin, possum. Armadillo? Children? Children, for sure. It works like a charm. Anyway, so, uh, you know, that's, that's, that's what we got for you. Um, as you know, though, there's, there's no end to what, uh, what we can do as a hero and, and to be a hero. And our hero story of the day is uh, it's fairly basic. It's going to be maybe a little bit more personal 
to everybody out there who is a stay-at-home mom or a stay-at-home dad that uh, maybe puts aside the money, puts aside some of the the opportunities, the luxuries of life because you just want to spend some time and you're able to go and be home with your children. Little shout out to you as the hero of the day today. I know it's easy and it's tempting to just get out there and, you know, make the money. Sometimes you got to do it just to stay alive. But I'm telling you to also know that uh, you can uh, take care of your kids, be there and, and actually find an exciting way to do that. My shout out to you. You are the hero of the day on the Matt Townsend Show. It's not easy as parents to parent anyway. And a lot of people are just making it minute by minute, day by day. But um, all of you that are willing also to, to lend a hand to all those other families that are working, shout out to you as well. Heroes come in every shape and size. And everybody's going to be playing this game of life a lot differently. And that's why we do the show. So you always have some hope. And you also have some ideas and some tools to help you take it to the next level. That's the show, my friends. We'll be back tomorrow. More ideas, more information to help you live longer, love stronger, lead healthier, happier lives. Until tomorrow, make it a great one. We'll talk again. Some of the top experts in their fields come on BYU Radio's Top of Mind to set the record straight. Like management icon Clayton Christensen, who invented the theory of disruptive innovation. It has been misused and misunderstood and misapplied. And when you hear that, you just say, oh man, how could you be so stupid? Get informed. Tune to Top of Mind weekdays from 5 to 7 p.m. Eastern on BYU Radio. KBYU-FM, HD2, Provo. Next on BYU Sports Nation, choose the impact side. Will BYU's offense or defense have a greater impact in determining Saturday's game? Just how good is UCLA's football team this season? We'll talk to the Bruins radio analyst Matt Stevens. How does a defense produce a frozen Rosen? Mm, Plus, BYU receiver Mitchell Juergens on how 